All right, students, settle down. We are headed across the world today, well, south of the world today, I guess, depending on where you're coming from, just across the world. Uh, everybody get ready. We are jumping into the Maya civilization. Not the Mayan. Uh, not the Mayan, just the Maya. And that esteemed voice that you hear to my right, uh, my stage left, he is the owner of a brand new truck. He is an army aviation enthusiast. And if you wanted to know if he could kick it, yes, he can. That is Professor Chris. A tribe called Quist? Oh, can I'm, I, I kick need it? to, I need yes, to educate you myself apparently a little bit. Oh, yeah. That, that's old school. I was listening to disco music on the way over here. Why? So, yeah. Why? Because it gets you like it's a good fast beat and I don't know. I like it. <laughs> We've all got our things, man. I guess it's better than uh, Viking power ballads or whatever it was before. Maybe it's just a phase like that. But yeah, we are here today to talk about a culture that kind of had me flummoxed for a decent amount of time. I think it kind of did the same thing to you as yeah. we were researching. But then everything kind of clicked, and we will get into kind of what makes so much sense, or why it makes so much sense, that the middle tribe, basically, the middle grouping yeah. in Mesoamerica... Yeah, we're just gonna, that's what we're doing for these ancient South American, Central American, Mexico civilizations, is we're just working our way up from the South. Yep. Yeah, we hit the Inca first. Excellent episode that is still, I think, in my top five for doing, because it was just a lot of... A lot of fun. We filmed, or we recorded it at like 11.30 at night. Yeah, and that was literally one of our, like our third. I think it was number seven. Was it? Could be. And one thing I think I came into with this is some preconceived stuff based on the Incan civilization. I've been like, oh, I'm assuming the Mayans are just like the Incans. They're just further north. They're in Central America. Not saying it couldn't be further from the truth or anything, but like totally, and I know that sounds ignorant, but like totally different as far as societal like structured things like that and even when it comes down to essentially kind of how they met their end like i assumed it was all just like and it had something to do with the spanish but i assume it was just like spain was just wiping everybody out yeah i think uh the great philosopher frank reynolds kind of screwed us up when he talked about how the spanish banged the mayans and then turned them into mexicans is that is that the Frank Reynolds explanation? I, I think for that the was the explanation. Civilization. So I mean, as much as you can trust Frank, I don't really know if he led us the right way on that. But the Maya people just uh, the fact that they are the myths about them, the legends, all that kind of stuff that really just sort of falls apart because it's almost a better story that they did just leave than mm -hmm. what the factors could be. Oh yeah. So. Yeah, uh, without further ado, we are going to get historically high on the Mayans. Right, we're heading to the Yucatan. So, crazy thing that I, I never even thought of. 
like I I've seen not in person, but like I'm I'm aware of where the asteroid that they say may or may not have killed the dinosaurs. That's going to be a discussion for another episode. Is that in Africa? No, it was in the Yucatan. Really? Yes. So, so in the Yucatan, the Yucatan Peninsula is in um, Central America, and it's the portion that kind of juts out. Into the Atlantic and into the Caribbean. Yeah, it's almost like the handshake that connects, um, I guess not really connects South America and Central America, but it does sort of butt into it, doesn't it? Well, as far as like what countries it comprises, uh, the main one that it comprises, I think, is going to be, what is it? I should probably have this pulled up completely. Isn't it? No, it's Central America. Man, we are off to a hot start. No, we're going to get better, folks. The Yucatan Peninsula is what is like would be present day like Belize, um, Guatemala, and then also why is it putting that El Salvador, Honduras? Um, that's actually right down from that's once it starts going over a little bit, and then before it drops down from like Nicaragua and then like Costa Rica and everything. So it's actually closer to almost right where Mexico touches into that. Yeah, I mean, there was a settlement that I believe Mexico City was built on or around or near. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the whole Maya region, like you just listed, it includes all of or parts of Guatemala, Belize, Western Honduras, El Salvador, and the the Yucatan Peninsula. I'll just put it in terms people can understand. Cancun, Playa del Carmen. Quintana Roo. Yep, all of it right there on the tip of the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, that's right where that is, and then it starts flooding in south, right? You go down into Belize and Guatemala. Yep, you got yep. it. So uh, they cover just a gigantic swath of land, and I mean, I don't know what everybody's general knowledge of the Maya people are, but we were all kind of led to believe that they just don't exist anymore. That yeah. it, it was a forgotten When you think about that, you think an extinct ancient civilization. Yeah, but it turns out that, uh, no, there's still a shitload of <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, kind of sorry, what I was saying for the asteroid impact that they say wiped out the dinosaurs, and again, it didn't wipe out the dinosaurs, but it created enough of a climate change and event and everything that it killed off all of what they ate. And so it wasn't like, flash, all the dinosaurs are dead. It, they died out because of this. But when that impacted there near the Yucatan Peninsula, it, you know, caused such like... Uh, like a seismic event that it basically, you know, the cenotes. Mm -hmm. So cenotes are basically, if you've ever looked at like watch national geographic or anything like that, or seen like cave diving, it's those huge circular like pits in the ground where like just a ton of water, like underground caves that go in through like a giant circular pit. Yeah. I swam in one. Did you really? Yeah. When we went down to Mexico, we got to swim in a cenote. We got to swim in a cenote. We got to go to a spoiler alert. Mayan village and have a traditional Mayan lunch that was fucking incredible. But within the snow day, basically it seems like most of the Yucatan Peninsula is just made of limestone. Yes. Limestone is super duper porous. So anytime that it rains, what would happen would be this water would leach down through this limestone, which would purify it and mm-hmm. make it nice and clean. And then it would end up in these basins that Chris is talking about called cenotes. And basically those would form when the water level below would basically like saturate the limestone enough to where it couldn't continue to sink. Mm-hmm. And then the 
water would build up inside of it. Okay. So this is a great storage facility for water if you have an abundance of water, which usually comes around with the abundance of rainforest. Unfortunately, the fact that all of the area is limestone means that there's not a dense enough soil layer to really make it like super fertile farming mm-hmm. ground. Yeah, it's it's a catch twenty two where you you're gonna have the option to go ahead and use all of these like natural reservoirs that pockmark the country, but at the same time, what are you gonna use that water to do? Yeah, and it really kind of is an undoing that we'll get into. So it's just sort of like this area that they were in, like Chris said. I mean, got hit by a goddamn asteroid. There's gonna be a lot of seismic events and a lot of weird things mm-hmm. that happen. Did it hit? Where water is now, or did it hit on land? So there's a portion of it that if you actually look at, like, you can see a satellite image of it. Part of it looks like it kind of swept across the tip of it and then out to sea as well. So you can actually see, like, linings of the impact crater on this. It's fucking nuts. Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. And before you said that it hit and then the dinosaurs died out because of the climate event, I thought it killed them all. Yeah. I had no idea. So you see essentially a civilization start to form. And again, like most ancient civilizations, it's centered around the most precious resource. It's water. So with the Mayans, the the big thing about the Mayans, I think, is that they were like within the Yucatan Peninsula, they were located there, but then very spread out throughout that whole peninsula. Like tons of different city states. And I think at one point, kind of at like the peak of what they would consider, um, Mayan civilization or Maya civilization. Mayan is actually the language. Yeah. They had like 40 or so of these independent city states that had like their own like kings and all that kind of shit. We're talking city states as in not just like little villages because pre-Columbian, which kind of forgot that Colombian meant Columbus discovering. Mm -hmm. And that's what that means. I was actually going to ask you about that. Is like, is that before the establishment of like the country of Colombia or? I believe it had to have been, but pre-Columbian, their population was somewhere between five and 10 million people. Mm -hmm. So how many city states were there that were that large? 40. 40 states, five to 10 million people. Now that just seems like an incredible amount and a population that could be sustained in a civilization. It's living in the middle of the jungle. Yeah. I, it just, these cities got so big and we'll talk about a few of them that are like over six digits in population Mm -hmm. for that to be able to thrive and survive such a population dense area like that. It would just have to have so many resources going to it. Yeah. So prior to 2000 uh, BCE, which is considered, what, the pre-classic period? Yeah, it's the pre-classic is going to be in between 2000 BCE and 250 CE. It's a 1,500-year span. Yeah. Okay. So that's when the 17. first... Yeah, wait. No. Uh, 2,250. There you go. I no. had the battle with BCE and CE again. No, because if it was 500, <laughs> then it would be... Fi- so it's... 1,750. No, because we go 2,000 to zero you and do, then zero if, to 250. Correct. But if you take 250 out of 2,000, what do you get? Uh, 1,750. 1,750 years. It works the same backwards as it works forward. It's still math. Ooh, we're going to have to disagree on this one because we go 2,000 to zero and then zero to 250. So the whole section is going to oh, be that big. C-E. Yes. You said B-E. Sorry. I was thinking 250 uh, B-C-E again. Okay. That's my bad. Uh, it's very just close to ex- we're arguing math on this yeah. because math is going to play very Huge, heavily into actually. the civilization. So it's a good 
it's a good thing to cover. And it's not Professor Chris's fault because we actually started this episode by smoking out of a Mayan relic that I was able to purchase in the old Forgotten purchase, Village of Koba. and that was for sale through legitimate means. This yep. is not a, a purchase transaction of a guy being like, Senor, come over here. It was actually, they made them in a Mayan village that was close to Koba. Nice. So I like just it. supporting local. Trying to get in touch with the, with the ancient spirits. That's what we're working on. So around this time, this is kind of, you know, in 2000 BCE, the first villages for the Maya and like agriculture of the Mayan region or Maya region first start to form. Now you're like, well, you know, why is agriculture important? Well, it allows stationary civilizations. That's one thing that's kind of been the talk about when we talk about, you know, nomadic tribes and stuff like that. Initially, you start out nomadic. Your next advancement level is to farm and create agriculture, that means you can stay stationary and support a growing population. That's when you can also start to build. Well, and they've even gone back. That's kind of the most amazing thing I thought out of studying the Maya people was they keep carbon dating shit that goes back further and further Mm -hmm. and further that they're finding in some of these villages. I think they said that the latest, or I guess the earliest thing that they had found it's from right around 3800 BCE. So we're talking about almost another 2,000 years before they finally really started to settle down into villages. Yeah. Which, I, I mean, I, and that juxtaposed with, I want to say it's been a year or two that they actually used this new form of, it's a, basically a laser that's mounted onto an airplane. It's mm-hmm. called LIDAR. It's not just what you wish you had when your woman came home drunk. <laughs> but... uh they can shoot these lasers down into the trees and they can start to map the topography of areas in the jungle. Oh, so they can start to see actual ruins that have been grown over. And, yeah. And so they've actually, I want to say the most recent Maya village that they just found that hadn't been discovered yet was only found like a couple years ago. That's not surprising if you look over any type of like heavily like jungled or forested area. You can't fucking see shit. Yeah, it just... The forest kind of took everything back, and we'll talk about where the forest went and why it came back the way that it did. But just the fact that that all happened in such a stretch of time, if you want to say 3800 BC is the the earliest dated stuff, to right around, and we'll talk about this too, but like 1500 BC when they first make, or uh, CE, when they start making connections with the Spanish. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, that's a massive, long civilization to live. I know, but and it's still crazy to think that, like, that's still, what, 500 and 500 plus years ago? Yeah. Not, not 600 years ago. Like, this is stuff that literally happened within what we're considering now to be recent history. Because shit goes back a lot further than this. Well, and we're still talking, I mean, today, again, spoiler alert, the Maya people are still around, and they're right around 8 million people right now. Yeah, descendants of people of Mayan descent. Uh, just yeah. an absolute crazy large number for these people. Unfortunately, I think they were kind of treated poorly as a, well, it's gotten better, but they were sort of treated as like second-class citizens because... In what country does someone come in and then treat other people like second, the, <laughs> yeah. the native inhabitants as second-class citizens? Who does that? It's really a weird thought to have, but it's partially because they just rejected the Spanish uh, assimilation. Yeah, exactly. So they wanted to keep their own rituals, and we'll go into Cortez and everything. But uh, like we talked about, the empire is 
massive parts or just full countries that spread for forever. Luckily, one of the best things that they did have going for them was they did have the port cities. Mm -hmm. So you would be able, instead of carrying everything across that rugged terrain, because also, like the Inca, they didn't have wheels. Yeah, another crazy thing. Okay, so you ever have phrases that you associate more with a song because you heard it in the song before you actually heard that it was an actual phrase just in common use? Yeah. So, like, when you hear Beast of Burden, what do you think? The song. Yes. I actually learned what a beast of burden was in this yes. this research. So like ox and cattle, <laughs> stuff like that. Like they're like beasts of burden. It's like, I'll never be. You'll be. Yeah. So they didn't have beasts of burden, which is like, okay, they didn't have cat Like to move stones and do all this kind of shit, they all did it by just manpower. So no cattle, no nothing to like haul all this rock and shit. Also, no cattle for farming. Nope. And yet they were still able to do that. Um, no metal tools. They had copper, but they copper's useless as a tool. I think they used it for like decorative stuff. Yes. So you're actually doing all of this stones, you know, sculpting with flint and obsidian. And luckily they did have, I'm sure it probably honestly had something to do with that crater impact that you were talking about because obsidian is just volcanic glass. Yes. And obsidian, if you don't know what it is, is a black... I guess it is a glass mineral mm-hmm. that gets sharp as fuck. Like oh, yeah. some some can, scalpels that they use in surgeries are actually made of obsidian over steel because you can actually get it a sharper, finer edge. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. So if you get cut with like an obsidian, like a scalpel, and you get cut with a steel scalpel, there's some that are so fine that you won't ever scar from the obsidian scalpel because the cut on it is so clean that it'll just... Everything it's not like together. tearing or cutting the flesh. It's just slicing it. Exactly. Well, yeah. That's fucking nuts. So to have those kind of tools and be able to do the things that they did was just absolutely amazing. And part of kind of that whole thing that we were talking about of like not understanding how the Aztecs, the Inca, and the Mayans were all kind of the same civilizations mm-hmm. as far as like how things are run. The Aztecs and the Inca both had heads of state. They had, like, capitals of the kingdom. Yeah, like everybody reported. There may have been, like, vassal states. Yeah. Basically, kind of like, think of, like, medieval England. Uh You would have a ruler or a governor, some shit like that, over a territory. But then that person was still beholden to answer to and pay taxes and all that shit to the actual king of the country as a whole. Yeah, everybody's villages went to back to one kingdom. Exactly. And so instead, like you're saying, you get these city-states that we were referring to previously that all had their own government, their own rulers. And then in a way, they would also have their own little, like, vassals that they would collect taxes and tribute and all that shit from. Mm -hmm. But you had, because of that, and you're not all under one central leadership, you're going to have a lot of fucking infighting. Because it's just, you know, if history shown us anything, it's like if they're separate countries and someone has something that you want, what better way to take that than by force? And it just felt like in some of these little city-states, there was always something to be gained. Yes. The way that they warred was absolutely just kind of astonishing. And we'll talk about that later. But the one or the two things, basically, that held the Maya area together, one was their religion, because everybody practiced basically the same religion among all these Mm city-states, so that was sort of a binder. But number two is something that's so rare, I think there's only five of them in the world, but they created a written language. Yeah. Which was, as far as the Mayan language goes, you're going to see many different 
sort of offshoots of it. Like dialects. Know, yeah, dialects, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about that. But this writing system was generic all throughout the region. And the writing system, I think it's what? It's cuneiform, Mayan. Um, Aramaic. Aramaic, I believe. Where's Gilgamesh from? Macedonian. Okay. And then uh, Greek, maybe? Yeah, I'm trying to think of the ones that are on the Rosetta Stone. Those are like three of the big ones. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, and then uh, what's Egyptian? Sanskrit? Egyptian. Uh, oh, yeah. Sanskrit, I think, is one of them. But Egyptians, hmm. I want to say hieroglyphics, but it's not. Yeah, it is. It was like I ancient. thought there was. It was called something else though, yeah, like I'm something sure. ography or I'm not sure. Not yeah. cu- we already said cuneiform, I think. So, I mean, <laughs> for an ancient civilization that is basically on their own, we're talking about a whole different hemisphere. The development of the world, on their yes. To have a written language that would be something that spread across this kingdom is just so advanced that it's. <laughs> just kind of mind blowing. It's it's you know a little foreshadowing and everything. I was racking my brain, and the, my biggest takeaway from this was how could they be so advanced and so good at like the advanced stuff, but then didn't foresee common problems that much less developed civilizations would see as far as survivability. Yeah, I I think part of it though is that they just sort of. As far as when you talk about like Stone Age, Golden Age, Bronze Age, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff, for all intents and purposes, they were in the Stone Age because those were the kind of tools that they were using. Yeah. But everything else, it was like they made the Stone Age work for them to be able to advance sort of on their own mm-hmm. in their own way. It's like they had priorities about what they were advancing in. Yeah. And the advancements weren't necessarily on necessities for – I mean they were, but they – as soon as they figured out like crafting stone – language, fucking mathematics and all that stuff, it feels like the focus got put on advancement in that so much that they're just like, well, this other stuff, the agricultural stuff has been working. We're good with that. And all of the focus and advancement and monuments and everything like that start happening. Yeah, and it's almost, like you say, they pushed more into R&D to create the arts. Yeah. A little bit, but... Maya Glyphs uses two different things. Um, the first one of them is pictograms, which they're just called glyphs, basically a picture to represent a word. Think of Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yeah. To a degree. I, I just, cuneiform. There you go. Is the word, I think. But they also had something that we still sort of use today, but they're called syllabic glyphs. So, syllables. A. A is a syllabic glyph. The letter A technically is, like, people want to think about it as a letter of the alphabet, but the purpose of that letter is to create a sound. Uh, A, A. Mm. So that's what a syllabic glyph is. C-H, ch. Yeah. Another syllabic glyph. So they were actually able to put these glyphs in a row to form the words. So a language that is actually so advanced that they're able to use these different syllables to create all sorts of different words. You can start recording your history. You can start recording information. Like that's the biggest thing that marks the advancement of a civilization is being able to record something. And they made it into it uh, at a fairly early time. But just the fact that we talked about the Incas so long ago, 
never had a written language. So we only have so much information on their empire just based upon the things that we find without having something that's written down. I think we even talked about their banking system where it was just like reeds that were tied in certain knots to mean certain things. Yeah. But uh, uh, I'm having a tough time kind of explaining it, but like a region that's just south of the Maya. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, they were a little bit later on. The Maya definitely I mean, not had a head just start south because they never made their way up through Panama or Nicaragua or anything. But when you think of the big three, South American civilization, yeah. Central American, it's the Mesoamerica. Exactly. You think you, your mind really does condense all of that down and you just assume that they all had interaction with each other as well. Like they must've been at war with each other, all these civilizations. The Maya and Aztec did have a connection. They met up more than a few times, I believe. Just simply because of the geographical, uh-huh. you know, closeness. But, yeah, the Inca, no written language. The Maya, written language. The Aztecs, I'm sure, probably used some of the influence from the Maya we'll for, find their, out. for their stuff. Yeah, we'll get to that. But just the fact that all three of these civilizations were on the same side of the world and only one of them really sort of figured it out, and I think the Aztecs did too, but... I wonder if that's really what made this civilization survive for so long because there was such like a common held belief between them in the religion and then in the writing system. And you're going to have another language come in here and people don't think of it as a language, but I think it's recognized more so is you now have a numerical system being created and not just a numerical system. And it took me a while to wrap my head around this because I was trying to figure out the importance of it. The Maya civilization developed the concept of zero in the fourth century. And you're like, well, of course, like everyone had zero. It's nothing. Zero is nothing. When you don't have something, you have zero amount of it. Not the case, apparently, (laughs) because they developed the zero in the 14th century. It was 800 years before Europe had, had invented the concept of the zero. And so the Mayans had a mathematical system based on zero. Was it one? A dot for one. Yep. And then a straight line across, just a horizontal little line for five. Yep. So everything was going to be built in increments of five. So if you had seven, it would be two dots above one line. Mm -hmm. If you had 10, it would just be the two lines and so on and so forth. Think of Roman numerals. If you're you're trying to imagine how the V-I-V-I-I and then you go back, you can go back. I don't know if you can go backwards in that, like how they have I-I-V and that's supposed to symbolize like eight. Well, once you get over five, the slashes go to different sides. Yeah. Because anything before it will be left, anything after it, like six, seven will be to the right. So you're like, well, why is this important? They could count some stuff. Great. It allowed them to start doing mathematics, multiplication, all types of like advanced like calculations. And this is where you start to get the buildings. Not only that, but I think this also kicks into gear. Okay. Sorry. They had four languages, not even to (laughs) fucking talk about the astronomical. Well, we do it. Yeah. The astrological, sorry, astrological side of it. So you have, and everyone has heard, or you know what? Maybe people don't hear about it as much because it ended technically. Do, does the Mayan calendar still come up? Oh yeah. We'll talk about it. No, we we're going to talk about it, but like after 2012, Oh, that I feel like that just kind of dropped off because that was like the everyone's waiting to see what's going to happen. Well, I think there's still the jokes like it actually did, and we're just living in the afterlife or we're living in the yeah. rapture or whatever because shit's gotten a little crazy since 2012. Don't think it had anything to do with this. But you have this, you know, the invention of mathematics allows you to then create or craft what will be essentially a, a staggeringly accurate measurement of time 
not only for the time that they were in existence, but mapping that out for up until fucking 2012. Well, and the real part of it that just sort of came to me as you were talking about it was they were able to intertwine these calendars into the back end of their religion. Mm-hmm. Because where they were in time when they created sort of the numerical system was sort of right in the middle where they put themselves. And so it allowed them to be able to go back and talk about an initial date when the gods first created what's considered the fifth world. And we'll, that's going to be an explanation in and of itself. But they were able to kind of build back ancient stories of gods kind of like giving kings that controlled these areas, like their certain powers, or they were coming from these royal lineages mm-hmm. that date all the way back to the gods back in 2000 BCE. From a world before. Yeah. I, and so it sort of gave them more of like a, a standing in a way to be a royal, to be a king, even queens. I mean, queens played sort of a big part in all of this, and it's so weird how this is so European, but we're talking about it in Central America. Mm-hmm. Because everything that we know about going into like all of the royal families back then, there were always trading uh, daughters to other kingdoms mm-hmm. and putting their royal blood and everything in that. That was all very intentional. And like you could be a royal family from one city state and get like, let's say that city state got taken over and you fled or whatever. You could then, like, be called up or drafted by another city. Like, hey, we don't have a ruler. Like, our ruler died without an heir. You guys want to come in and give this thing a shot? Yeah. Uh, you you establish trade routes. You have uh, not really vassals, but these royals would come with basically, like, a certain amount of offering that was given to mm-hmm. them by the people where they came from. So if you were a woman who had offerings coming from your old homeland, your old village, your old city you're marrying into this new area, the king or the prince or whoever that just married into you married into some money too. Oh yeah. But it, it was they, like, they kind of took over then at that point. It was like a mutually beneficial thing mm-hmm. to where they would start to build these tight, strong bonds in these city States. It, it just reminds me of like, uh, how you always hear like, what was the, uh, dowry? Yeah. Like, Oh, uh, we're going to provide 50 head of cattle and like some linen sheets or some shit. It just, it seems like the way that they intertwined a world away is just so similar. Well, and like, you know, at the, at the peak, there were some cities that would establish, you know, like you were saying trade with each other, but then would be like ally cities and everything. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things, how you kind of, in in a couple um, instances, how you kind of signified that you guys were allied and trading partners is their road making ability was nuts and it was like super elaborate. So they had to, cause they had, they didn't have a way to roll anything. So they had to walk it. Not only that, but they're going through the fucking jungle. And so you had to have some type of established route. So in a couple circumstances, one of the best ones, it was called like a sock bay. And I'm trying to remember what cities it went from. Um, I think it might've been from Palenque and I'm trying to remember what the allies name was, but they created a 60 mile, path not only was it a path but as you can imagine if you're walking through the jungle the jungle floor is uneven you're going to go up you know up little mounds down little mounds they created the path to be level so they filled in all the areas that were low land and filled it in and then made this entire 60 mile path level 
and they would line it on each side with stones first to keep everything in, then fill it with like shard, like shards and crumbles of limestone and everything. After that, smaller stuff to get it more fine. And then they stuccoed the entire thing to make it a smooth path for 60 fucking miles. Which is essentially how we really build anything today, because you're always going to lay road mix down. Then you're going to lay something finer to level everything off. Some type of mortar to hold everything together. Instead of asphalt like we use now, they were using stucco. And, oh, go ahead. The the whole thing, it's just mathematics. It's their mathematical system enabled them to make this level like you're talking about. That's the thing you... Like, imagine in your head, you're you're driving through road construction. At certain points during road construction, you have people that are there doing surveys and making sure, you know, where their next line is going to be and everything. You literally have these Maya foremen out there. I just imagine them holding, like, a clipboard with a fucking banana leaf or an animal skin sitting on it and being like, we got to go, guys. We got to go. We're behind schedule on this. Be like, who needs their lunch? Who's taking their lunch break? Yeah. Some guy's sitting over there on rock just eating sandwiches. I got I got to get my 15 boss union union rules. You think that was like fuck I wonder if we could all just get together and overthrow this asshole that's running like eh, union what, what, would there be a word for that? And the guy's like there is no word for union <laughs> in Maya or in mine. There's no word for union. Get back to work. Yeah, the only the only pictogram we have for that is just back to work. Mm-hmm. But the language like we were talking about earlier was such a big part of being able to connect these and then sort of like the ability to almost be independent by speaking these and sort of a way that I heard that kind of summed it up would be like if you started out in I think it would be like Holland and you started working your way down through Europe Mm -hmm. like there would be sort of like you would start with a language you would get something else that you could understand the next place you stopped, there would be something that you understood less until you would reach down to an area where it would just be something completely different. Like a but game of telephone. It, it finally yeah. reaches the end. The message is completely different. I, you're hearing everything else. And as far as as unique as the writing was, I also sort of think that Mayan language was just sort of the same thing. Because um, I don't really know how to describe it. Give it a shot. Um, it was sort of like there was a a loss in history of these languages, mm-hmm. and I think there was about thirty of them that had been adapted. And once the Spanish kind of took over and rewrote their history, as far as like this is what we found. Mm-hmm. All these languages for, were lost for all these years. Yeah. But you still had these small villages that were outside of these cities that did put up fights. But it was like their culture was just kind of taken as far as nobody outside of these villages was speaking it. Mm-hmm. And as you get further and further generations away from those dates, you start to lose these things. And here's the thing, too, is if you have a civilization where simply things are simply passed down by word of mouth and stories and everything... All you have to do to wipe that out is wipe out the people. Then you don't have to worry about a record system. Yeah. So the establishment of an actual langu- language is what allows us to understand as much as we do about the, you know, the Maya as we do. So the writing system itself was kind of lost by the end of the 16th century. And it's not really, you know, that makes a lot of sense. 
archaeology and looking up ancient civilizations at that point was not a priority. That's something that's just been a, a very recent thing about trying to do, decipher this type of stuff. Trying to reconstruct the ancient world. Exactly. And so up until the 19th and 20th century, there wasn't a lot of like research or lo- looking into this. But because they were able to actually find like texts and even some situations like literature, like written on animal skins that had been preserved, which is fucking nuts that... <laughs> In a fucking jungle, like this. A tropical stuff, environment. This stuff, some of this stuff somehow. And then not only that, but, you know, kind of like we were saying before, if, you know, you want to Google, like, Mayan, like, pictograph, or, like, however you want to do it, there are these giant walls in these temples that are, like, so ornately carved. It's just, like, how did they do that just with, like, stone? Because these... I mean, they used to be sharper, you know, sharper contrast because, you know, the years have worn them down a little bit, but they're still very, you know, very clear of what they oh, are. Yeah. And not only that is, like, they they had to, like, all the snake symbols and that, where they had to carve out, like, the teeth and the tongues. Jaguar heads. Yeah. It's so crazy. And they're not in, like, a large, like, huge tablet. These are, like, foot-by-foot limestone tablets that they're just carving with precision out here. To me, it, it's almost like if the Egyptians wrote Japanese, mm-hmm. <laughs> if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, because a lot of the Egyptian stuff, you needed to have you had curvature and everything like that. Uh-huh. But the difference was, this is a perfect example. Egyptian stuff was carved into the stone. I feel like Maya stuff was carved out of the stone. It's almost like they carved in the negative. Yes, and just left the, uh-huh. the picture to it. Yeah. Which I guess is going to survive a lot longer because if you're talking about Egyptian, also it's an area where there's sand, so it's all coarse. Mm-hmm. All it has to do is is wear that stuff down a little bit. With the mind stuff, you have to wear it way, way down, all the way to level to not be able to really decipher what it was. I sort of think they needed to do that, though, because sandstone, obviously very soft, made of sand. Yeah. Limestone, also very soft because it's made of lime. That's true. So it's they almost had to really emboss these things in there because they wanted to make it sense this time because nobody ever thinks of the end of a civilization happening. Mm-hmm. You just want it to live on forever. Yeah. It, it's like we talked about the carving of the bank in the uh, Nabataeans mm-hmm. and in Petra. Yeah. That was pushed into the uh, side of the mountain because they knew the winds and everything would end up rubbing yeah. it away. So they wanted to keep this around forever. Luckily, they did because it took us a really fucking long time to decipher yeah, no what they had going. So to date, we understand and are able to decipher about 90% of Mayan text accurately. Uh, and it was literally like decades upon decades, like a world effort. There were people all over the world that were working on this. But the first thing we decoded was going to be the number system. We kind of figured out the calendars as far as that went. The number system sort of seems easy to me if mm-hmm. you really think about it. Yeah. And they were able to kind of start to decipher the calendars. The 1930s is really when it kicked off that they were trying to nail down the language. So from the 1930s, it was there were people that had sort of ideas, theories, hypotheses. Some of it was right. Most of it was wrong. You move up into the 50s and 60s, and they kind of start to get this idea to where they're starting to figure out the syllabic. Like, yes, some of these are pictures, but also some of these are words that are made up of these pictures. And it just sort of pushed further and further and further until we finally just had that 90% grip to where we could go through. There's four surviving books mm-hmm. that they found so far. I'm sure if they found another one, it would probably be a goddamn well, like you miracle. Said, like they're having, there are so many like you know, there's not, and I don't know how many in, you know, the, the Yucatan, how many Mayan, um, 
sites there are that they've identified, but the 40 is just what was, you know, at the, at the peak when they had the most. Yeah. Well, that we know of. That we know so of. So far. And that's considering the fact that, like you're saying, there's that new LIDAR now that's able to detect. We could be finding treasure troves of these, you know, mine artifacts just simply on the premise that, like, if someplace was easy to discover, like, and some of these places, the pyramids that they built tower above the jungle. So they're able to be seen by a ways off. You have some of these places that are buried in the jungle that haven't been, you know, grave robbed and, like, treasure looters and all that kind of shit. Think of, like, what can be preserved there. Yeah. When it hasn't had, like, the touch of man to spoil all that shit. Well, we're finding these tombs that they've gone through and they found everything inside of these tombs. What could be entombed in those other cities? Because if those other cities had kings, they Mm -hmm. were going to put them in tombs. So what offerings are in there? What else is going on that we just really have no idea about? Well, just as kind of an example. So I was watching, fuck, I can't remember the name of last night, but I had to rewind it like two two minutes, like within the first two minutes, because the guy (laughs) that was doing was hosting. It was the guy that played RoboCop, Peter Weller. And he has a super distinct voice. And so I'm sitting there just listening. I'm like, that's fucking RoboCop. And I just started thinking about RoboCop. And then like two minutes went by and I was like, shit, I got to figure out what this guy was trying to say. So These are the dangers of doing research high. Exactly. So what RoboCop was talking about is they discovered this place called, um, it was a giant temple and they named it the Temple of the Inscriptions. And I'm, some of the temples, they know what the name of because they can decipher the glyphs, like the Great Jaguar Temple or whatever. It was yep. in Chichen Itza? Mm. Uh, I believe so. Okay. So in Palenque, you had this place called the Temple of the Inscriptions, which was their version. It was their main temple. And I want to say back, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was, a, it was sometime recent. Um, an archaeologist was doing some research down there and found basically a tunnel, like in the top of the pyramid going down and what had happened is the tunnel had just been filled in with a bunch of like loose debris and rocks so it had just been backfilled so like intentionally intentionally so as they're digging out all of this loose shit they discover a crafted staircase going down now why this is crazy is because one thing that might be a little bit of a misunderstanding about the Mayan pyramids compared to like the Egyptian pyramids the Egyptian pyramids for the most part were built as tombs So they had an internal structure, tunnels that went through them, burial chambers, things like that. Mm -hmm. A ton of these well-known Mayan structures from the outside, they look pyramid in structure, but like they're a terraced system of pyramid, not flat. They were actually constructed and then filled in with dirt and debris. And then the stone facade was built on the outside of it. So they were built from like the inside out? Not really, but I think what they would do is, you know, you would build the the first um, base structure and... You would then just, instead of having like an Egyptian pyramid where it would all be blocks filling out that entire thing, and then you would have chambers built out. Yeah. Most of them were just filled in with like loose rubble. And then as soon as that was level, then they would level it out and create the next terrace, fill that in with debris, create the next terrace. Okay. So they're not necessarily like hollow inside, which is why this temple of the inscriptions was so kind of shocking. I wonder if that was sort of like, it sounds almost exactly like the road building plan. Yes. And you know, if you look at the blocks on like a Mayan pyramid, the blocks aren't to the scale of an no. Egyptian block. They're not these huge, massive stones that are, you know, several people wide and tall. Still pretty fucking big. They're still big, but they, you know, this was, these were guys moving this into place by manpower. Yeah. And so they discover this staircase, they dig it out, they work their way down. And when they get to the very bottom of it, they find six 
skeletons. And the six skeletons were the people that were buried in there to make sure that they also, it filled up and they, you know, were able to move the rock into place and keep it from uh. just caving all the way in. They then discovered this um, triangular-shaped door. They go into it, and there's a massive tomb. It was like um, the part of the tomb that he sat in was, I want to say they said maybe like six to eight feet wide and like 10 feet long. And it was a tomb, the part, bottom of the sarcophagus was carved out of a single piece of limestone. So they somehow, when they were building it, put that in first, built everything, and then built this staircase going huh. up as they were filling this shit in. And inside was um, this, uh, I think it was his name was Pakal. The way they were identified this is Pakal is the Maya word, Mayan word for shield. And all carved all over the sarcophagus were these pictures of shields huh. so they were able to tie it to this guy named Pakal, which they were then able to tie back to literature and like other inscriptions that they were able to find and so i mean some of these were used as tombs for these like kings and just like the egyptians apparently the big thing if you were a king how you flexed is through primarily through your monuments that you had and especially monuments to yourself to the gods technically yeah. that they were really built especially if you're going to get buried in one that's for you <laughs> but I mean, it just doing all of that with, you know, Flint and Obsidian, it, it's nuts. Yeah, I, a stronger rock is always going to beat up something that's softer, like mm -hmm. a limestone would. But the amount that they had to make was just incredible with some of the heights on some of these different pyramids that will... It Go showed through. the guys, it, you know, it showed examples of how, like, people that are in Mayan villages now to show how it would have worked demonstrations and stuff. Yeah. They're literally just sitting there with a piece of flint with, a, like, a flatter piece of limestone sitting in their hand and just literally just scraping and knocking chunks off the bottom and then they'll flip it over and then they'll do the edges Jeez. and everything. It's just, it's nuts that individually all of these rocks and bricks were handmade. Out of these smaller ones, it's even, it's, you know, the thing about the, is so impressive about the Egyptians is the, the scale and the size of these blocks. You're just like, how the fuck, the mystery is almost not how did you make them? Because it makes sense. You just quarry a big ass fucking rock. Yeah. It's how did they fucking get there? Yeah. The, the transfer of it, which the Maya also did have slaves, but to a much, much smaller extent yeah, this because was a, there this wasn't was anywhere else to conquer. And this is talking about carrying the things where they put the rope around their foreheads. Yeah. They said they were able to carry several hundred pounds. The workers could do that. But with the fucking thing around their forehead, carrying the weight on their backs. Very small people, too. But I wonder if it's also kind of a... I, I, well, it's got to be near sea level if it's right there. Yeah. So it's not like the elevation shit that the Incans were, you know, being able to build up superpowers. That's true, trying to climb up mountains to be able to build it. So it just kind of goes to show, like you were pointing out too, with the, the shields and how we were able to figure out that that was Pakal. Mm -hmm. The writing was so important in the language at the same time that followed that they had just a certain language that was probably born out of the writing style. And the language, I think, may have been not... A, I think the writing style may have been adopted with the language because... It all started out with just a proto-Mayan language that was kind of right around 2000 BCE. And um, as that was started to speak, they were starting to 
spread out, branch out into these other villages. Like I say, we end up with 30 languages that are sort of like the 30 modern Mayan languages that had just gone dormant. But that magical number 2012 that we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, the end of the world, really renewed a sense of culture in the Mayan people to want to go back and to relearn those languages. So they could sort of bring it into their culture, but also their culture that they had already known about mixed with the languages is helping them to be able to decipher the rest of the language. Did, did anyone do like demonstrations of like speaking Mayan when you were down there to like show you what it sounded like? Yeah. We actually got to hang out with a shaman and he did a blessing on us, saved us for the trip. But unfortunately I was in a van with, nine French people. So it was really, it didn't ward those spirits away. (laughs) He could only do so much. He's one shaman. But yeah, we actually heard a shaman prayer in a Mayan dialect and it was just, it's so incredible. And maybe it is just the fact that their culture is held so tightly to them, but it almost becomes like a respect thing to be able to hear the way that these things are done. Yeah. And granted, it was a prayer and it was a religious ceremony, but there's just such a sort of like, this is a sacred thing. You'll make an exception for whatever God that they were praying to. Yeah, no, I was cool that I bowed my head. feathered snake God. I didn't throw an amen out there because I don't think they had amen. (laughs) (laughs) So that's sort of the language and some of the math. We'll get back to it, but we got to kind of start talking about the periods because there was three periods. There's the pre-classic, and that's going to be from 2000 BCE to 250 CE. Um, really the first for people that still, yeah, AD, uh, common era, honest Domini, but really the first place that they found is a city called Quelo and it dates back to 2600 BCE. So this was something that was pre-classic period that had just continued to build and build and build. And it's really like one of the oldest things when I was talking about the civilization started kind of before we realized it. And 2800 sort of plays a significant role when we talk about how they did the calendars and how it plays into religion. Mm -hmm. But it's, they're finding artifacts from before this pre-classic period. So um, getting into the pre-classic, we have this place called Nakabe, which is by far and away the most well-documented Maya city in Guatemala and really kind of in the whole region. So you have two, and and there's, Technically, two kind of regions that we'll refer to. There's the highlands. So think of that as just uh, more uh, more jungled, I guess. And Less then, sea level. Yes. And then you have the lowlands, which were closer to sea level. And the lowlands are basically where most of their agriculture is taking place for a lot of these cities. It's because they're able to clear cut. They're able to, you know, till soil and things like that. Like Adam kind of alluded to before with that limestone you're not getting a lot. And so just kind of a little overview as far as people not familiar with like crops and everything, you can only grow something for so long each season before you pretty much killed the soil where you've, you know, exhausted all of the nutrients out of it. And you have to allow that to rest for a pretty extended period of time for it to be able to kind of rejuvenate itself. And where you have a civilization that now has language, mathematics, astrology, all this kind of stuff and is very stationary, this population is growing and they're just having, they don't have the option to, to stop, you know, farming and everything. So what they also start doing is they're like, well, fuck, we have more people. We need to go ahead and create more food. 
they start to actually clear cut trees kind of up toward the highlands and everything up in these hills. It's called a slash and burn campaign. Mm -hmm. And start using this for farming. You're like, well, that's good. They're using all the land. They're going to grow more food. What you're going to get in that situation is not only are you still killing the soil, but now you've just removed all of the trees, which if you're sitting on an incline and it rains a lot, which (laughs) guess what? You're in the middle of the fucking Yucatan Peninsula. It's going to rain a lot. Erosion is going to start to become a huge issue. And I'm not talking erosion over a few storms. We're now talking erosion over the course of hundreds, if not a few thousand years. That mudslide's just prevalent everywhere. That mm-hmm. that little bit of soil that you had left has nothing to anchor it to the ground, so it's going to start sliding too. And part of that, um, part of the deal with Nakabe is that they start seeing these massive structures that are being built out of this limestone right around 750 BCE. Mm-hmm. So it takes them a while to start building these structures, but part of the way that they build them is I'm sure that they built structures before, but without the math and the knowledge and how to structure them and build to them. make them so massive. Exactly. You had just smaller little mound monuments, things like that. And as soon as math, you can you imagine the first guy that came up to one of these like Kings or whatever you consider the heads of these yeah. cities and being like, I have an idea. <laughs> You're like, I can use numbers to create a pyramid. And he's like, get the fuck out of here. And he's like, no, let me do this. He's like, go for it. Well, and you got to think, they didn't really know what a pyramid was, so it was probably like a little small scale that he cut out, and he's like, you see how big this is? Mm -hmm. I can make this a billion times bigger. Or just remember that hill that we made to do our, you know, fucking sacrifices? Yeah, ceremonies. Yeah, that hill that we just built out of dirt? What if we could build that out of stone and make it ornate and paint it and everything? That's the other thing, too. It's one of those things where you look at these monuments and look at these structures now, and you're like, these things are still beautiful. The natural stone everything those were completely covered with stucco and then colored. Yep. So you had some of these, that were this like blood red temples that were sitting in the middle. Like, can you like, what would the juxtaposition be like? You're, you know, you're coming into this village for the first time. All you're seeing is green around you. And then you come in and you just see this giant red temple just rising out of the distance. Yeah. The, the color against the backdrop of the forest just would be so striking to be able to see these yellows, maybe even some colors that you had never really seen That's before. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah. They loved uh, jade. Jade was a big thing with them, so you're seeing this awesome, brilliant blue-green. Um, what was the bird that, the Quetzal? Yes. That was the bird that was, like, sacred to them, and the Quetzal has, like, uh, green plumage or green feathers, and so that's where, like, when you're looking about you know, looking at these Mayan leaders and like um, the big headdresses that they would wear and like the big green feathers and everything, those would come from the Quetzal. Uh, just the vibrance that they started to really form was kind of becoming all their own. Like a lot of it you see, I think a lot of these civilizations, as far as like the Inca, the Aztec, and the Maya, they all really sort of worked with vibrance, mm-hmm. but the Inca, they had so goddamn much gold and silver that everything was plated in gold or silver. So it was a shine and a sheen. I think Aztec colors were a little bit more muted and dark, mm-hmm. but Maya color is, it's that richness. It's that jade green that you see that's just so distinctive. Well, and uh, just for some some recent point of reference, uh, I didn't see the second Black Panther but I saw enough of like the previews and everything like that. Basically, Namor or Namor, whatever, however you want to pronounce it, from like what's supposed to be their version of Atlantis. Yeah. All of it takes cues from like the Mayan civilization. He wears the giant headdress. Um, 
what's the city called? Techno, the tech one. I think you're about to step on my special fact, and it's going to make me really, really. I'll, sad. I'm going to hold off on it anyway. To call? No, no, no. Oh, okay. It's um, Kalakmul. No, it's a, it starts with a T, but it's not the one that you it's said. Not to call? No. To Tukon? That one, I think. That's like what the village and the underwater... To Tukon, I believe. Yeah, that's what the underwater city is called. So like even the fact that like there's comic book characters and now movies that are pulling from fucking mind influence is kind of nuts too. Oh, I got a deep pull for you that I think you're really going to like. All right. But part of the way that they would build these big temples and these big sort of structures, they would use limestone, but at the same time, if you heat limestone a certain amount, you can create lime again. Mm -hmm. And lime apparently is a very good material to put in between boulders to be able to hold them in place, Mm -hmm. sort of like a root. I think there is lime in concrete. Yeah. So it's like a a rudimentary style to hold these together. It's mortar. Yeah. You're you're essentially creating a system of mortar where it allows you to, instead of having to, and here's the thing that's crazy. They, you know, uh, with the Incan and the um, Egyptians, everything is held together by gravity and fits so precisely together. Yeah. The stone itself has to be crafted in such a way. I think the Mayan were actually able to raise so many of these because of the way they went about the actual construction. They were like, well, we can't, you know, get all of these stones perfectly level, but what we can do is we can put a stone down and then mortar around it to then make it level and then put the next one in place, mortar around it, make a level. So they had a, they saw their weakness in building and they're like, now we're just going to create something that shores up that weakness. Yeah, it was a shortcut. And in the process of going through with the slash and the burn in the forest, they would use that wood then to fire up some limestone, cook it down to lime, and then be able to use it for mortar. So it extends out these areas even more beyond just farming and agriculture mm-hmm. to where you're stripping the land. You're clear-cutting the just for the lumber. Yeah. Because they weren't building – I mean, I'm sure they built like – some homes had probably like you know mud and wood and stuff like that were built out of it. But yeah, I mean, you're clear-cutting this shit to burn it, to create more mortar, to go ahead and create more temples and shit. Well, I, it just, it seems like such a a necessary thing, but it's almost like it's part of their undoing. And it, so it many like, of these cities that we see now, when you see the lush green jungle that surrounds these Maya cities, it wasn't like that when no. they were hab- or inhabited. It was <laughs> all clear-cut, and it was all clear as day between these cities and villages. And since they've been abandoned and left alone, all that nature has been able to creep back in to sort of make it what it is, that sort of mystical thing today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think of it in the way of, of when you look at it, and today you see the jungle almost growing up just to the edges of like where they've cleared out for these temples. Prior to this, the temple was like, the central location of the city. Uh So imagine standing up on and seeing nothing for, you know, probably not a mile around it, but a pretty, well, yeah, yeah, just completely clear and just structures everywhere. Housing. Yeah. And this is right around the same time that, uh, the settlements in the lowlands of the Yucatan start sort of popping up. Uh, one of them, El Mirador covered around 65 square miles. Or 165 or 16 square kilometers for our our uh, metric system fan. Jesus. So 60 
Oh no, it's six square miles, not sixty-five. Six square miles. That's, that's still it's an S instead of five. But yes, six square miles. Yes. So to think that that much area would have been clear cut, I'm sure there were still some trees up around, but six square miles of clear cut is a massive swath of land that has just been completely taken of all of its like natural sources. Yeah, just completely clear cut. And then kind of going back to like we were talking about with Petra. These places just aren't popping up at random in certain places. There's there's rationale behind it. Kind of going back to that um, Palenque place, it was positioned almost centered between four cenotes. And kind of like you were saying with the cenotes, what they discovered with those is like, yeah, water pools up in here. We can use this water. It's been somewhat purified by nature. You know, we can utilize that. What they did even more so is they went down, took some of that sweet, sweet, lime mortar and they stuccoed the entire interior of these cenotes to where you were essentially creating things that wouldn't the water couldn't leach out of it you were creating like reservoirs the same shit that was going on in petra yeah all the way across the world they've come up with the exact same thing they've they've tracked it to the point too where they believe that they had a form of pressurized irrigation that would come in by utilizing water sources that were higher up than the villages, bring that water down through a piping system. Gravity feed, yeah. Gravity feed, and then as it goes down, it gets smaller and smaller to where it pressurizes, and you would have running water and fountains in these cities. And not only that, there was in this Palenque, I'm just using this as an example, I'm sure this took place over many, many of these different Mayan cities. They had a fucking drainage system because there was so much rainfall. And the drainage system, yeah. they were using a form of, I'm trying to remember what the type of dome is called. It's when you create a structure and then up at the top, you just start kind of like staggering blocks a little bit further out, but then the blocks on top of them hold them down and you create an archway. Yeah. And that's what is able to go ahead and hold weight. They'd use these inside the um, pyramid of, or sorry, the temple of the inscriptions. What they did, <clears throat> going back uh, reference to the Vegas episode, remember when we talked about those huge tunnels that they had underground that would divert water away from the public areas? Yes, now, yeah. They had those. Huh. Not to that scale, but they created these things. They dug into the ground deep, maybe like 10, you know, 8 to 10 feet, and they created with stone channels and canals and then domed them over and then covered them with dirt to be able to do agriculture on them. And these would essentially, you'd have people just out here farming and underneath them would be these waterways that were taking all of this rain, excess rainwater out and dumping it. It's a, a crazy sewer system that, again, was copied almost the exact same way on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should just settle this whole episode and just say it was aliens. Yeah. Because that's really the only way. I, I think the only thing that I can really describe it, and I think that that's sort of... I don't know. The only way that I can rationalize how all this happened so similarly is that it was a human brain in the Eastern Hemisphere and is a human brain in the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And it shows the equality of like human evolution to be able to have a brain that comes to the same conclusions. Just, just problem solving too. They, coming to the same, you know, I'm sure there was trial and error through some of this stuff, but that every civilization almost dealt with the same types of shit. Yeah. And they had to find their own way about it. And when they did find their way to the best way to do it in a staggering amount of times and situations, it was very similar to one another. It's like there was one answer and they all found their way to that same answer. Yeah. It was, the human brain, even though it was from a completely different place, was able to finally come to the same conclusion. 
Well, you're still wiping your ass with leaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, you're wiping your ass with leaves, yet you still have uh, fountains and fucking drainage systems. Maybe and they all. use them like bidets. Who that's, knows? That's true. Maybe that's, that's why, why they pressurized, pressurized it. it. There you go. <laughs> uh, another one that was kind of like the center of the universe for the, the Maya Empire. Uh, Kaminal Juyu. Kaminal Juyu. I, sounds Japanese to me. But one of the reasons that it was was it had these just massive beds of obsidian right outside the town. So they could be the hub to start to push out this very valuable mineral that was going to be able to be a cutting tool and to be sort of like their Stone Age rock of choice. Um, And it was actually occupied, I think, for the longest time. Right around 1500 BCE is when it started, all the way up until 1200 CE. So, what, 2700 years? It was occupied, not like fully occupied as in a city, but occupied as in like the majority of people move out, but it was still inhabited by certain groups of Maya. I'd, I'd love to know like how that stuff develops because it's a geological like lava type thing, right? It's got to be heated and pressurized to create obsidian, right? Well, that's what I mean. I think... Volcanic glass. Yeah, it's volcanic glass. So I would assume if the asteroid had hit, it would have turned... It was on the other side of the... Con- I was thinking the exact same thing. I just looked it up. It was on the other side closer to the Pacific. Really? Yeah. Just, there must have been some type of like... Prehistoric geolo- volcanoes? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. And I wonder if maybe the Andes being kind of down below it would have something to do with that. That was so far away though. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, to be inhabited for 2,700 years is a pretty long occupation of an area. I mean, we're working on what, uh, 350-ish years, 349 years in America? Yeah, that's not even counting, less if you're counting the actual establishment of the country. Yeah, yeah, and then even everything before that that we took over. But a civilization to live in one city for that long is just astounding to me. And it branches through that. It branches into the classical period, which is sort of like the the bread and butter, the soup and nuts of the Maya empire. And that lasted from 250 CE all the way up to 900 CE. Before we jump into that, we need a pee break. Alrighty. Well, hey there, all you sexy historians. How you guys doing? It is time for socials. Where can they find us on Instagram? If they want to uh, follow us, they can find us at Historically High Pod on Instagram. That goes the same for Threads as well. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Ooh, tell them about Twitter. Historically High. That's historically H I on Twitter. And if you want to email any of your comments or suggestions, where can they find us at, Adam? At Historically High Podcast at gmail.com gmail all right and back to the show all right class is back in session the classical period i love when they name things like this because you think it's supposed to be like classical it's like oh this is when they discovered tea and started (laughs) and started uh with the opera i mean they sort of their big achievement during the classical period was just massive fucking monuments that they started to date. 
Like they started to put the numerical system on there because it was created so they could start putting dates to all these monuments to tie them back to the kings and rulers who built them. So kind of, I guess this is a weird way to look at it. So we've talked about like their monetary system and how it wasn't really an established monetary system. It was a system of barter and trade where they assigned things, value to things that in themselves were valuable. Food and like... uh, Cacao beans. Cacao Cacao beans beans were like the cents and like the cash money that you would carry around. And that would be like, at the same time, you could bring like a wad of bills home, throw it in a pot and make something out of it. That would be the equivalent of today if you were able to do that. If you were poor as shit, you could go wander in the jungle until you found a cacao tree, beat down a couple pods, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you got money in the bank. I was going to (laughs) say, can you imagine how many people got wealthy and like I stumbled across an orchard on my walk or like a wherever. Do they grow to bush, right? Uh, it's a tree, I believe. Okay. They come in these big fucking massive pods. But <gasps> Daddy's rich. <laughs> yeah, like you, you, it's not Jed Clampett where you just accidentally strike gold by shooting your shotgun. You just walk oh, into the oil. A tree. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of what it was. It's just oil that goes grows on trees. That's sweet, sweet brown oil. And they did for bigger purchases. They would use stuff like jade. They would use copper um but those were like almost like the credit card mm-hmm. not as it wasn't credit but it was black like, card yeah the black card that was the black you, card. you could do whatever you wanted with it so what i'm getting at here is with this isn't debatable we'll get into it we haven't done enough research to make a determination on it but egyptian pyramids you're building it with slave labor or a combination of your own people and slave labor I know that they did have slaves here that, you know, when they went to go raid other towns or villages, they would come back with this kind of stuff. The ones that they weren't sacrificing, that they were utilizing for a workforce. Or dual purposes. Or dual purposes. (laughs) Um, So you have these, like, rulers that are like, hey, we need to build a new monument in this city. Do you think it was disguised under the premise, like, the king was like, well, this is for me. But at the same time, he was like, well, this is for the gods. And that's how he got the people behind them to basically work and fund these type of projects. Absolutely. So, I... and the other thing too is the, the rulers of these places were looked upon as people that had like a, basically a bat phone to the gods. They were the ones that knew what to do to appease the gods and would provide them instructions of what the gods wanted. And so you would have rulers that as long as, you know, they were able to make things happen, like, you know, there could be a drought and they wanted rain to come and you sacrifice enough people, you know, keep bringing them up here. The gods aren't appeased yet. Um, you know, you bring rain, all of a sudden you're the ruler that's the hero. But at the same time, you would have these rulers that essentially through no fault of their own, other than being full of shit and saying they had a line to the gods would run into like spells of bad luck or lose, you know, wars or battles or whatnot and would get kicked out. They went to some pretty deep lengths that I saw, in research to try to open this communication to the god. One of the things, the kings would uh, cut their penis. And, A little bloodletting. Yeah, mm-hmm. use the blood. Women, sort of funny that guys use their cock and girls use their tongue. Mm-hmm. But they would jam like reeds and shit into their tongue, like through their tongue to make yeah. them bleed. Then they would offer the blood up on these sacred fires. The smoke can, would rise why up. Why can guys just do that? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no tongue for you. Well, maybe that was it. Maybe the women started using their tongues like, God, I got to come up with something better. Mm-hmm. What's more important to a man than his tongue? His penis. That's true. Going to make this happen. That's got to be where the good blood's at, right? Yeah, got to be. Yep. All the brain blood is down there. That's right. But they would put it onto the smoke. The smoke would rise up into the sky, and that would be like their direct talking line with their ancestors. Send the smoke signals to e- the serpent god. Exactly. Yeah. So in a situation like that, 
they're trying to curry favor because these towns, these cities are becoming more urbanized as far as, excuse me, they're centers of trade that are just massive. They're starting to bring all these other villages into one sedentary area because they need more people to kind of run this city. Yeah, you have like these main larger cities and then you have a bunch of like smaller ones out and the ones that, you know, are within their reach start kind of getting gobbled up. You know, they're not necessarily going in and taking over and being like, you're out of power, putting someone else in. They're just like, hey, by the way, you owe us now. Well, like, yeah, this is where a lot of the political families started to intertwine mm-hmm. to build up these alliances. Yeah. So you have, you know, 50 or 60 people that put offerings to this queen or whoever it was, goes and moves into a big city like Kalakmul, somewhere along there. They start to bring other people into these urban environments and it just grows. Unfortunately, to the detriment of everybody that left in these smaller cities and the alliances, because then they have to start producing more food for a larger city mm-hmm. center. Not only that, but if your you know head city decides to go to war with another one, your your guys are getting called up to fight. Yeah. So you your responsibility is to also to provide manpower for building these temples and also to provide meat when they decide to start a fight. And when we talk about big, we're talking about cities between 50,000 and 120,000 people. In the jungle. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Not really in the jungle during this time. Well, yeah, exactly. About, but, but created out of the jungle. Yeah. And but, still supporting themselves in a jungle environment. And that's where those other little areas became so important was because they didn't have the clear cut of the jungle yet. So they had to rely on everybody else to pitch in to make mm-hmm. these bigger cities happen. Um, it just, there's so many different little warring factions that happen. And that's, what's sort of funny about calling them like a Maya civilization is it was a grouping, but it was like brothers and sisters fighting all the time. Mm -hmm. And it sort of turned into the situation where this really big city called Tikal ran afoul of another city called Kalakmul. And this is where my, uh, my fancy dancy fact comes in. I think it's really going to make you excited. But uh, Tikal is the actual Tikal National Park in Guatemala. Was used as the rebel base Yavin 4 in yes, Star that's Wars. that's right. Yep. Yeah. Learned a little bit. Yep. So in A New Hope, uh, when they're, you know, before the battle with the Death Star, Yavin 4 is where they're stationed, where the rebel base is that the Death Star is trying to get to. But you do see images when, you know, they had to, of course, superimpose and stuff like that. But, yeah, those are actually the, the ruins. And then I think when they're taking off as well, you can see sticking out above the jungle one of the, the temples. <laughs> this shit was built so long ago. And somehow George Lucas is like, you know what? This was built so long ago that it could also look a little bit futuristic. And alien. Yeah. Like it's another – like you never think twice that that was not – designed to look like an alien planet. Like, in your head, you would be like, oh, they designed that because it was an ancient alien civilization that built it. It's that, like, otherworldly. And it just blends in seamlessly. It's just so cool to think that this stuff is used from the past in these movies about the future. Oh, shit. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Fucking Petra, man. Yep. Very true. These ancient cities make for wonderful movies. Mm-hmm. But Kalakmul really didn't like to call. And... Kind of in a show of force, they started working with Takal's alliances 
to drain the resources be like, hey, we actually have some more cool stuff over here. Do you have any royal family that you would like to marry into this big empire? I don't know what Tikal's offering you, but if we could help you out, you know, maybe you start helping us instead of providing them this and that. They just started trying to work their way in on these cities to kind of not conquer, but almost build alliances with these cities that were currently under Tikal's control. And then as soon as they're under control, guess what's going to stop coming in? Any of that tribute, the food, any of that stuff. They're going to be like, what the fuck is going on? Like, we're not getting our shipments. The quickest way to cut off the top dog is to take all of his supplies, mm-hmm. to take his supply lines away. Yep. So it sort of goes back and forth through this whole classic period of them fighting for control between these two cities of just these alliances that are around this mm-hmm. area. So interesting to think there were times when Takal was up, there were times when Kalakmul was down, mm-hmm. there were times when it was vice versa, but it was just these two cities, which are under the same Mayan banner, that share the exact same religion, which a lot of wars are usually fought over, mm-hmm. in a similar writing system, which I guess... Very strange that it doesn't seem to be wars of ideology. Yeah. It's war of resources. <laughs> it's just so different from so much that goes on, but... It, their fighting style sort of lends maybe towards a friendlier approach to it. Yeah, um, that's right. Didn't they? So it wasn't like what you would think of, of traditional warfare where you're just trying to wipe out your enemy. They somehow had the wherewithal to have like almost like rules of engagement, I exactly. guess is the best way to say it. So, you know, if you were in a battle, like a Mayan battle and they weren't like enormous as far as like the people went, it was just like, you know, skirmishes between like groups of soldiers or groups of essentially not soldiers, but groups of villagers that were just having to wield, you know, stone tools and fucking spears and shit. But if you were to turn your back and leave the battlefield, that was it. Like they weren't going to try to kill you. Yeah. No pursuit. The no pursuit. So like literally during the course of any battle, a lot of these battles ended not really with a winner in the classic sense of like, well, we took out the enemy forces. You would just kind of like the, they'd be like, we're done. We're going to turn up, you know, we're done fighting. You guys win. Well, in the biggest part of it, that sort of a odd thing was since the Royals and kind of the upper elite had to continue proving why they were the Royals mm-hmm. and the upper elite, they were being involved in these skirmishes yeah. because if they were out there winning glory, that glory would then only like be exemplary back in the cities. Mm-hmm. So well, and they, here's the other thing too. It, if you, your, your, um, your future is predicated by the outcome of this battle. Yeah. It, by you being there to inspire your troops and, you know, to fight for you and everything. And, and maybe some situations having to fight yourself, if it became desperate enough, your option in that was either show up, inspire, maybe fight or risk. Just, I hope my guys win. Cause guess what? If your guys don't win, you're getting taken prisoner, getting taken back to the temple at the fucking city that won. Yep. And you're getting your fucking heart cut out for an audience. Yeah. You're, you're the antithesis of MacArthur. You're all your beans are on the table as soon as that war happens. Yeah, and can you imagine the type of like prestige it would be that like your ruler or priest is now sacrificing the ruler and priest? Like they'd be like, "Oh, the gods are gonna fucking love this." Oh yeah, well, and that was a big part of it because one of their they just felt like it was the most disrespectful way to die was on the battlefield. So instead of killing people out there, they Weird were juxtaposition. Yeah. To what most civilizations would think. Yeah. Which makes me believe that having maybe the same religion sort of mm-hmm. help civilize these wars a little bit. It's got to really take, 
if, if you don't have an ideological reason and you're just like, what are we fighting these guys again for? What, beans? Is it beans? I'm not going to have a lot of desire to fight for beans. I mean, but you tell me, you know, these guys are evil. They believe in a different God, all that kind of stuff. If I'm an ancient civilization that I can get behind like, yeah, fuck their God. Our God rules. Like, let's go kill them. Uh-huh. Like when you don't have that, I really don't see. And that's why you don't see a lot of these places getting wiped out during warfare. It's just something that it's like a battle happens to see who's going to be under new management. Yeah, and it really, like you say, these wars weren't fought in cities. So this wasn't like one faction bringing it to another city to try to take them over. Mm-hmm. It was almost like these were pre-scheduled bouts. Mm-hmm. And the way that they would sort of figure out like a win or a loss yeah. would be how many other soldiers from the other side were actually taken hostage that and brought back move. to your town. They didn't yeah. want to kill them. Yeah, they because wanted- it was disrespectful to kill them on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And. This also lean, you know, leans into when the Spanish actually show up. So not only do the Spanish have the advancement in the armor, hor- they've never fucking seen horses. Yeah, that's first of big all. advantage. Not only that, but their style of warfare is basically like, hey, we're gonna fight hand to hand. I'm I'm gonna try to like capture you and wrestle you before my and you know, I'm only gonna kill you as a last resort if yeah. that's what you force me to do. And if you turn your back to me, well, fuck, I'm just gonna be like, okay, later. Maybe we'll battle again. Whereas when the Spanish come in, you turn your back and they're just going to fucking cut you down from the back while riding through on their horses. Somebody will nail you with an arrow. Somebody will throw, you know, something at you. You'll get lanced. And And that there were, sorry, there were a bunch of examples of like when like the Spaniards would come in the conquistadors, they would be trying to wrestle them off the horses instead of trying to kill them. Take them hostage. Exactly. Yeah, it... The Spanish didn't have a real great shot with them, and they got some chemical warfare and then called in some friends to really make what happened happen to them. But part of that ethos of not killing people on the battlefield, they used spears, um, they would kind of use like a, a rough lance. They had a spear thrower called an atl addle. Yep. I always think someone's just like got peanut butter in their mouth. It's an atl addle. <laughs> so an atl addle is basically, um, think of it like you have a, a straight stick, and on the end of it is kind of a hook, and in the tip of that hook is a notch. It's a chucket. Yes. Oh, yeah, like a chucket for a dog. Yep. Exactly. Instead of holding a tennis ball, it's got a little hook that almost goes all the way around and faces back the other direction. You then would take a spear, and a spear, the base of it would fit into that little thing, and you would basically hold them both together with the bottom of the handle and the spear tip pointing out, and when you would go to throw, you would let go of the spear part and it would propel it and you would throw like that. Like a javelin coming like a, out. Yeah, like a fucking javelin thrower. That's got to be fucking hard as shit, first of all. I don't know how accurate that thing is, but can you imagine just getting like, that was a fear. It was just a, a not very quickly thrown sharpened wooden stick. Yeah. It's just going to... Well, and that was like the long distance weapon. Mm-hmm. So that was how much they believed. The 30 foot weapon. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah. It's probably accurate up to like 15 feet. And then after that, who knows where it's going to land. Exactly. But it just goes to show that everything was supposed to be more of a fair fight. It felt like, like, like there ma- was maiming weapons, not yeah. like kill weapons. Exactly. It, like you said, once these soldiers and everybody were rounded up, if they took a king, if they took a royal court member, something like mm-hmm. that in the battle back, that would kind of signify the win because it's like, hey, we got your... We got not, your guy. Yeah, I was going to say I'm not good with chess, but is that like getting the king queen. or the queen? Queen. Yeah. Yep. 
and they would then be brought back. Uh, there's a little debate, and I'm not sure why it's debate other than smart people just wanting to sound smart. But there's a debate whether they actually sacrificed people or the ritual killings. There's which... not a debate. There's <laughs> one person that we both listened to that the entire time it was. Here's the thing, too, that it not off topic, but up until more recently when they started to decipher a lot of like the Mayan language and like events and things like that, the minds were weirdly thought to be like almost like a peaceful uh, or a more, I guess, more on the peaceful side of the spectrum and more civil. And so I think there's some people that once some of the history came out and been like, no, there was some brutal shit going on here. I mean, that's mm. just the. There was one person that did it. Okay. I think you know who it was. The Spanish guy? Apocalypto. Oh, yes, that. Apocalypto is, I'm sure, a great movie. I'm not a real big fan of the gentleman in Apocalypto that made Apocalypto. Mm -hmm. So I... Yeah, I don't know how much I trust Mel Gibson to be to create an accurate portrayal of the Mayan civilization. The guy that got famous doing Mad Max and Lethal Weapon. I think he's got a little bit more of a dramatization from an action standpoint. Yeah, and a guy that doesn't really understand the lines of what words are okay to say. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to get to that, but yeah. So I think Apocalypto really was bad for the Mayan people just because it made them look like absolute savages. When in all actuality, I mean, they, it's undoubtable that they did sacrifice people. Mm -hmm. Like the the rituals that would go into it, the it was, shamans it was that were part there. Of their religion. Yeah, they, they were works. literally pulling hearts out of people's chests mm -hmm. in different situations. With obsidian knives. Yeah. Just cutting them open. And pull, oh, my God. So they definitely did it. But it was almost more of like sort of just like a, a final ending to it. Like mm -hmm. it was definitely a ritual. It was definitely a sacrifice. It can be considered part of warfare and still call it human sacrifice. Yeah. That was the end result. If you're really thinking about it, it was like, hey, let's make sure we take control of their city and can use all their resources. But at the same time, it'd be really nice if we could bring some people back here for some hearts to cut out, you know? Well, and it kind of puts everybody in the cities at like a general ease because you Crazily know... Crazily enough, yeah. yeah. Like, what are you guys doing tonight? Oh, just a nice, relaxing night out at the sacrifice. Yeah, it, it, well, there wasn't a chance that they were going to like get kidnapped on the street as like a virgin and be brought up and sacrificed mm -hmm. to the gods for that. Like, Can it you wasn't... imagine that? They were like, oh, we get a break. <laughs> they were able to capture the enemy king and a whole bunch of soldiers, so we're safe for the next month or two. The Inca people heard sacrifice and everybody's buttholes puckered. Mm -hmm. When the Mayas heard sacrifice, like, cool, one of those guys that we stole from war the other time yeah. is going to die right in front of us mm -hmm. so just a a very interesting time as far as that goes um and especially like we say with the warring factions it just sort of changed the game but in sort of a respectful way uh the next massive city that we're going to talk about is uh what we talked about a little bit earlier with teotihuacan and it's considered the birthplace of the gods like that was a, a rough translation mm -hmm. that they would be given um it is 25 miles northeast of current-day Mexico City. Uh, it includes the Pyramid of the Sun and the Moon, which were both built kind of in between 200 and 400 CE. Uh, the Pyramid of the Sun is 215 feet tall, 65 meters tall, 135 feet wide, 224 meters wide, uh, 720 feet long, 220 meters wide, Oh, dude, it's fucking huge. Yeah. It's so not like what you're 735 thinking. feet wide, 720 long. Fuck. It's absolutely How would massive. you even see them cutting the heart out on top of that? 
<laughs> Everyone on the ground's like, did he do it yet? There's like interpreters coming down the steps and everything. I'm like, he did it. Well, I, I feel dumb for doing as many of these with pyramids and large structures as we have and not really remembering this. But was the idea of these structures being so tall and so high to be closer to the gods? Yes. Okay. 100%. So I was going to say that had to be like a recurring theme in my brain because we learned about it. And I just hadn't quite put two and two together. But uh, the uh, Pyramid of the Moon, pretty impressive in its own right too a little bit smaller it was only 141 feet tall 43 well, the sun meters god was more powerful than the true moon god yeah uh 482 feet wide 147 meters 426 feet long 130 meters so obviously width is going to be from right to left long is going to be like how deep it is mm-hmm. but uh at the millennium so at the year zero um 125,000 people lived in Teotihuacan. 125,000 people. That's a massive ancient city. Yeah. Just and and to be able to not only have survived long enough to create these monuments, but then to survive after and having a system set up in which the population of 125,000 can survive. I think they said the statistic I heard just to kind of put it in perspective. So a farmer today, a farmer today, he can feed roughly, I think they said 50 people. One farmer can provide food for 50 people for the year. I'm not saying everyone, you know, farmer that does corn is feeding 50 people, like overall the amount of food they can provide. Yeah. Back then it was a farmer could provide food for five, which just shows you how much space and how, much agriculture they had to have to keep a city of 125,000 running. Well, and that becomes the issue is you got to have 25,000 farms. Yeah. Just to provide this and (coughs) excuse me with the way that we farm now, it frees up so many more people to do so many more things. Mm -hmm. But when you only are going one in five instead of one in 50, you're going to have to have more people at the, the starting point, to feed those people. So Mm -hmm. there can only be so many people doing other things. And that's where we see like this weird final tipping point. And a couple things that I had heard from some historians, (coughs) excuse me, that make me think a little bit differently about the Maya people is it would almost be like they would have these reconciliations along the calendars with each other where it would be like they would try something for a certain amount of time and if they really like weren't happy with it there would be situations where they would just walk away from the table or they would do something different and right around just cut your losses yeah it's sort of like we tried it this way for a while it didn't really work um we marked it on the calendar that it didn't work let's try something else and that's where i think it's really the ninth century saw just this mass exodus of these big cities Because through multiple different factors that we'll talk about just kind of what could have happened to these big cities, but you had this really weird drought that was caused by... I love this. Yeah. I love this part of it. So Give me a little bit on that. Okay, so the um, Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean and then part of the Yucatan Peninsula. So part of the reason that that area happens to be as fertile, like despite the amount of room and all this kind of stuff, part of the reason why it's able to sustain the agriculture that it can is because it's part of the trade winds. And if you listen to the Pirates episode, the trade winds were 
essentially a recognized area around like kind of is it equatorial? Yeah, that you would get essentially right the equator. bands of wind that would travel generally in one. You'd have you know the easterly winds and the westerlies, and shipping would then steer into those lanes and be able to get somewhere faster. Well, at the same time, when you have wind like that, you have basically storm systems moving in along those same lines. And with those storm systems, bring rainfall, bring all that good stuff that helps you maintain crops and all that shit. Well, they said that at one point, kind of around this time period, you said 900? Uh, ninth century. So the ninth century, they're, the crazy shit they can do with fucking carbon dating and like all of the stuff for soil samples and they can tell when it happened. Yeah. So it was determined that there was around the ninth century, the worst drought that had happened. And I want to say they said like maybe like three or four or 5,000 years. Well, weren't the samples that they were pulling from, like from the ice caps? Yes. They were somehow able to, I, I have no idea how they're able to determine it. That's science beyond my comprehension. Yep. And what happened is it shifted the trade winds and moved them up further north. So all of that stuff that they were getting from all of the rainwater and everything, they had a drought that was essentially the worst drought that they had seen in like 5,000 years. And you can't, when you're feeding 125,000 people, and I'm just using this as an example for this one city. Again, like we stated, what was the population? Let's just even go lowball and say at any given time it was 5 million people. Yep. When you got to be living year to year, pretty damn near close to it. When you're supporting that many people, you can't afford to have, maybe you get through one bad season. Some of your people die off. You have less to feed. You go through another season and this shit's not getting any better. We probably should go to war and be taking some stuff. So not only do you now have people dying from possible starvation or famine, now you get warfare in there. Um, Take that on for a few years. And like you said, the, they had these weird, exodus is out of these cities so you would think that like oh a city just dies and like all the people there just die it wasn't like that like if people just died you would see tons of like fucking skeletons and all that kind of shit mass graves <laughs> anything like that sorry about that yeah definitely and through all of you know all of these excavations they're not able to find this kind of stuff which means that these people at a certain point in mass fucking just left these giant cities to go try to go find a, another place to live and be able to survive. So like, imagine that you have these gigantic fucking cities and just these thousands, tens of thousands of people just leaving everything behind except what they could carry. Well, and you wonder so much, was it a situation where it was like certain factions that didn't believe in the big city theory anymore that were like, well, um, if we take, you know, five farmers, that would give us enough people for 25. If we have 50 farmers, that'll give us enough people for 250. I'm sure. Do we want to round 250 people up to come back with us so we can kind of start a small village? I don't think they had that much control over it. I think people were just like, fuck it, we're leaving. Especially at this point when you haven't been able to bring rain and your people are dying at that point, there's no, I don't think you're following the government at that point. It just becomes survival. That's what I'm talking about though. Like bands of people within the cities that are making those choices because they're used to living in a city around other people. Mm -hmm. So they can't just go nomadic by themselves with their family. Yeah. You have to travel with enough people to, you gotta, it's like today you have people with different skill sets. 
you need farmers. You need people that can fucking build settlements. You need people that know how to run water. You know, you need all those people. So I would expect you would see these different groupings of people that had these different skill sets trying to leave. And at the same time, you would have people that were just like, fuck it. I guess we'll take our chances up in the jungle. And so much of the danger of the drought is their food sources because part of the reason that other civilizations that live in kind of less uh, hospitable areas is food storage. You can't store shit in a tropical area because there's always so much humidity and moisture in the air. They said that they would end up losing um, crops of corn Mm -hmm. before a year would be up in dry storage because all that moisture in the air and humidity would get to it and start the rot. So what is your saving grace at one point now becomes the detriment at that point. Yeah, and... Their other big fatal flaw with what they were eating was they could only grow things that weren't really calorically dense. Mm-hmm. So you had corn, not real calorically dense, uh, chili peppers. There were certain kinds of beans. They had turkeys instead of chicken. Mm-hmm. Consequently, that seems a little odd. That there's just I maybe... like turkey more than chicken. I mean, well, I guess it depends. Yeah, it's sandwiches. Yes, maybe just eating it. A nice rotisserie chicken. Ooh, Costco fried chicken's got to be better than fried turkey too. Oh, yeah. I think I would think so. But just sort of different ways to eat food that you're not really packing on the pounds. And like you said, not having any beasts of burden sucks dick for traveling. But also, if you can't eat them, you're forced Mm -hmm. to go out into the jungle. And if you're going to take down a jaguar or anything like that... I would assume deer, probably (laughs) close. I would assume deer would be preferential. At some point, you have to think, too. And we sort of talked about it a little bit the other night. But if um, Teotihuacan has been around for so long... They've had to have gone out and hunted all the animals in these outer rings around the city so much that there's just going to be nothing left to hunt to where you're going to have to go further. It's like a hunting thing versus like with the Coliseum and entertainment thing. Yeah. Where you're just going out and finding more animals to bring in to be killed. Exactly. You're just having to – yeah. And then how long is it going to take before essentially you completely decimate a breeding population of those animals or the animals are just like, fuck it. We keep getting killed here. We're just going to go further. It just – makes such a scary situation of food, I guess you would call it food wealth, Mm -hmm. becomes so much more important than when a drought hits and you're already sort of like on that teetering point. It's not going to take a real big drought to be like, fuck, we got to really rethink this plan because it's just not sustainable. You don't even have time with that drought. I mean, I'm sure they had been through some droughts, maybe a season where rain was a little bit less. And I'm sure leading up to the point when, you know, the trade winds shifted, It wasn't instant, like one year they were going this way, one year they were way up north, but you would kind of see the writing on the wall and be like, not as much rain this year, not as much rain this year, and be like, wow, we really don't have a plan for this. Like, what if this keeps getting worse? We don't now even have the ability to store food or try to come up with a contingency plan because we're just trying to survive as it is and feed all of our people. Which to me feels so weird for somebody that was so detail-oriented to create. Exactly, that's what I'm saying is, but this is also something that you could not foresee like how do you understand i mean this is an insanely intelligent at the time civilization but when you're still believing that everything is the response of the gods rainfall you know the weather the stars you know everything like that you really can't foresee and be like all all you're thinking at that point is our king has failed us or the gods hate us we did something wrong it's not like an explanation of being like well maybe the weather just shifted it's just and we'll talk about it a little bit when we get into their calendars that they had 
they had growing seasons planned out based upon the stars every single year. Mm -hmm. So to have that information year after year after year and not see like, hey, things are getting worse. Maybe we need to figure out a contingency plan. That's what kind of surprises me Mm -hmm. is they were so detail-oriented to track that shit that there wasn't like an alarm bell where food wealth got to the point of like collapse and they're just like, hey, what can we do? We've come up with all this other shit. Do you think the isolationism of it also played a role? Because, you know you tend to in other civilizations and cultures when you're able to open trade that's outside yeah, of your yeah. own culture and everything, you tend to evolve because you see them doing something better. You adopt those ideas. You see where other civilizations or you hear stories where they failed due to these reasons. You know, if you're talking about over in Europe at this time or anything like that, you're getting people that are seagoing people that are coming in from other areas and being like, yeah, we actually sailed through a place that experienced a drought. And they're like, what's a drought? And they're like, oh, where rain doesn't fall for like three years. Like, that's a fucking thing. Yeah. So by being so insulated and only really having the communication between essentially the greater Mayan empire or whatever it would be, you're only, it's like trying to ask for information in your neighborhood about what's going on outside your neighborhood. It's just, you have no point of reference for anything. Exactly. And so when you don't know that these things, and we're going to find out with the Spanish, being so isolated like this, they had no idea who the fucking Spanish even were and had no idea what to do with them. Yeah, I, there's just a myriad of things that kind of started this last little bit of into the post-classic. And one of the other things besides the mass exodus of the cities was there was more of a drive north into the Yucatan away from like Guatemala and Belize. That's the thing too, is if you look at a map of the Yucatan, so where it if you move north and you don't realize that if you don't move far enough east, because that's Aztec area, correct? Yeah, it's you, you sacred area. <laughs> exactly. So you're not able to go east because you're going to get killed there. When you go north, you don't have a ton of room to go north. It's not like an endless, you know, expansive land. Once you hit and you get up into that peninsula, man, you've got water on three sides and you can only move so far north. And not only that, there's already people up there experiencing the same shit that you are. So you're just like, they said that at certain points, these cities would just get inundated with refugees from other cities, but would have nowhere, nothing to do with them. Well, it's not like you were also providing a mass for your people at that time too. So taking on any amount of anybody extra is going to throw everything in flux. Mm -hmm. So you're going to see sort of, it's almost like a domino effect. It's like the people running for something that they know causing other dominoes to Mm -hmm. fall as they were to get there. And that's where we come into the post-classical period, that beautiful city that is so hard to pronounce, uh, Kaminal Juyu, Juyu. Uh, I would say Huyu because the Huyu? J is usually not pronounced. Could be. Um, it finally is abandoned. And along with most of the larger cities that sort of followed in this social collapse's wake, we're like, you're talking about... They spent so much time building these big monuments, and that was sort of how they realized that it was like almost like a panic time was because there was a lot of half-built monuments. I I believe we may have made a miscalculation (laughs) in the allocation of government resources. Yeah, like there was was shit that was just left half-built. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like it was destroyed. It just wasn't finished because there was less of a desire to almost want that part of history to be written down because so many people had fucked up. What they considered to make these cities so great, these large populations, these huge cities, these giant temples, ended up becoming the worst possible scenario because, you know... Once you get into a city like that and you have generations and, you know, centuries of living in cities like that, 
the majority of your population starts to lose the skill set of being able to survive outside of those cities. So where you've established these cities for so long, you now have it's it's literally like asking someone that lives in New York or fucking London, Madrid, whatever large city. All of a sudden you need to move out to the country and start farming now. And you're like, how the fuck do I do that? I'm used to just the food coming in. Well, so much of it that I have to remind myself when we're doing these is we're talking about such vast and large expanses of time. We're on the planet for, what, 75 years Mm -hmm. if if we're lucky. So we can really only think of like, hey, 75 years is the only time that I need to focus on. I mean, having children, having parents that grew up beforehand, you're going to know at best like a 120-year window. Mm -hmm. And that's a situation where that's the only glimpse in time that we get is just what we heard from our parents and what eventually we're going to hear from our kids is we're old and out of the game. And it makes us feel like the last 70 years, you know, if that's what our lifespan is, whatnot. And we have a generation before us that's still able to tell us about the time before that. Maybe if we're lucky, one before that. If we're talking about a classical period in this, it's from 950 to 1539. Exactly. So and that's so many generations it, of it forgetting is. fucking everything. And with we've crammed so much into the last hundred years, just yeah, in our also in, very true in our culture that it seems like wow, like so much shit has happened. There's been so much change, so much advancement, and everything. When you're talking about this, this is, you know, hundreds of years where little advancements are being made and people are just living out their lives. Uh, yeah, it, it really is that. Like, it's they sort of reached an apex and then they just led comfortable lives, comfortable lives into comfortable lives, comfortable generations into comfortable yeah, generations. Like, can you imagine, like, you go to ask, like, your dad be like, what was the big thing that happened when you were alive? He's like, they raised two pyramids. <laughs> and they're like, what? And he's like, yeah, it, it, in 70 years they've raised, or they. I'm guessing back then the lifespan was not 70. Probably us not. now. In 30 years, they've raised a pyramid and a half or however much they did. That was how you marked essentially the great, you know, events of your age. Ah, we went to war twice. And we're just like, you guys, so like, how long were your wars? Uh, Well, like half a day, like an afternoon. It was an afternoon of war. It's like we've had like 12 in the last hundred years. It's so, I, that's a brilliant point because it never even crossed my mind to think like they... They had sedentary generations where a big win, like you're saying, is like a temple being raised. Mm -hmm. Like there's no, we didn't go from Atari to PlayStation 5 in our lifetime or their lifetime. That shit just didn't happen. Yes. We've seen so many advancements just within such a small swath of time. I mean, we were both born, not before the computer, but before like these. I was was born before the um, personal computer. But, well, I was too, I think. But at the same time, like, there were computers that were computing before we were born. Oh, yeah, like the fucking room size ones. Uh-huh. Yeah. But we were able to see that being brought into the home and then turned into mm-hmm. fucking phones that we can carry around in our pocket that does the exact same thing as, like, a Compact Pro in 1996 mm-hmm. did. And much, much more. And that was all just within a small span of time. These guys, they had a sport that we'll talk about kind of to finish up that's just literally translated into ball. Yeah. <laughs> like it was just a rubber ball. It was a very interesting kind of deal. Which is crazy to think what you just said is, is factual. Yeah. It was a, it was a rubber ball. There was no advancements in really anything that they did. And I think it was probably because they had a fairly decent life. Like they're, I don't know if there was a lot to strive for because of just 
how decent they probably had it. Because I think necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. So if they had everything there that they needed. Well, if you're thinking of like common citizens as well, back in these times, you would have like peasant classes and like low classes. They were probably just happy to have like the food shortage show up and like go play ball every now and then. And their lives were simple, uneventful, but that was their lives because they never knew anything different. I, they would get to go every so often. They would get to go watch the sacrifice. And that was, that was enough for them. Well, and if you're already in a big city, you can go around and see the other big cities, but unless you're going to the coastal cities, mm-hmm. like you're just kind of seeing the same shit, just yeah. different, different monuments. Yeah. Oh, there's this taller than us. Fuck. There's this tall, their temples taller. Okay. Got to get to work. Yeah. You know what we're doing next? Well, speaking about the coastal cities, so everyone starts to kind of like on these exoduses, the only place they're going is, you know, toward the coast, whether they know it or not. And these coastal cities are already established and they tend to fare a little bit better. I'm guessing, you know, part of it was like you were saying up on the board here. They, you know, I don't know if it was so much of a a commerce having to do with like the ocean or anything like that. I don't think at that point, but just for the simple fact that maybe those coastal cities also had an additional source of food. Oh, buddy, tons more food. Yeah. Like they, they had the entire ocean that if any of them learned how to fish and everything, like not only is that supplementing additional food, but that's food that you're going to be getting sources of nutrients that these other people aren't getting. You're getting, you're getting some of that sweet protein where otherwise you're getting it from beans. Well, and even if you're not great, if you're trading with other coastal towns along the way and somebody else figures out fishing and you bring an excess of cacao down there and they're like, Hey, we just pulled this shit out of the water. You want some, you want to try some It's mm-hmm. pretty tasty. Like you're sort of, you have a system of other people that may be able to do what you can't to mm-hmm. provide more proteins. And that's definitely fish is going to fuel you more than just beans and other things that you're growing. Well, here's the thing too, is I don't think the timing of this, this, this just happens to come down to bad timing with the drought and everything. It's also self-inflicted from the, the Maya not having, you know, uh, they could, they could plan the shit out of a calendar, but they couldn't see what was going to be happening in a few years. You now have all of these popul this huge population moving its way to the coast, where you now have them within you know a certain mile miles of the coast, and that leads us essentially to everybody's favorite section, the contact and conquest section. <laughs> so this is going to take place between fifteen eleven and sixteen ninety seven. So over the course of what a hundred and eighty six years. Yep. And but- this is when our Good friends, the fucking Spanish show up. The conquistadors. These guys were just so bad. They couldn't keep their dicks out of South and Central and Mexico. Yeah, and it wasn't really like a... It wasn't a fact-finding mission. <laughs> are are the Spanish considered the... I, I'm not going to use the term most successful, because I don't like what that, the connotation of that is. Are they the most... Fuck, what would you say wide spanning um conquest country or civilization most achievements yeah would you would you consider that cuz i mean they pretty much did take over south america central america like a uh, two continents yeah we'll have to take a dive into colonialism for an episode because i think the french and english pretty well covered africa yeah and australia the british had in australia the british were into china yep and then Japan, too, I think, at some point. Maybe. The yeah. Russians always had the whatever they were considered before that and everything, Prussia and all that kind of shit. They just had a huge expanse already, so I don't know if they really had the intention. 
anywhere they went on their landmass, they were just like, we can just fucking ride horses everywhere. We don't need to fucking do ships. And it's so cold, nobody else wants it. That's true. Ours <laughs> is ours. We don't have to worry about people trying to take over our shit so we can just go try to take over theirs. Um, but yeah, I, unfortunately, I think in this context, it's okay to to give them credit. And it's sort of like that weird discussion we had about the best of bad situation people. Mm-hmm. Like the Spanish, I feel like are sort of number one because they did it really poorly as far as really bloodily, uh, not a word, but bloody battles, different things like that. And sort of just like mass wipeouts of yeah. these places. And part of it, I wonder too, if we just haven't heard about it because it wasn't our colonialism, but you got to think that when the French and British were going down into Africa, there was much the chemical warfare that happened down there Oh, 100%. that happened here. So in 1511, two shipwrecked Spanish soldiers were saved by a Mayan city. And I think they ended up like, there were six of them that originally survived the shipwreck. Nine. Nine? Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories. So they end up, and, and this isn't like a shipwreck, like it comes into the beach and then wrecks. So it's off the coast, like miles and miles off the coast. They get into a shipwreck. Out of the nine, two end up surviving to get to the coast and they're saved by... Oh no, they, they all got to the coast. The other nine were dispatched. Pretty quickly. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Okay. Well, even better. So we get two Spanish soldiers, survivors, are saved by um, a Mayan city. And one of them, Gonzalo Guerrero, he's the uh, he's going to be the good guy as much as he can be here. And then Geronimo de Aguilar. And Gonzalo, or Gonzalo he ends up ingratiating himself with the Mayan or Maya. He ends up marrying the princess. Very physically. Yes. He ends up marrying the princess of the um, city that saved him. And and becomes like a... Essentially, he sees the writing on the wall. He's like, well, I can either be loyal to the Spanish or I seem to have a pretty fucking sweet deal here. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be Mayan now. And <laughs> I just saw what they did to nine of my other guys. Yeah, no, hey, I'm mine now. I'm, yeah. yep, whatever you guys need. Maybe I ingratiate myself. Maybe I try to be of service. So he's able to actually tell, and it doesn't do him a ton of good, but he's actually to, able to tell, um, the Maya people or whoever is in leadership there, what's going to be coming and like how to prepare for it or what they're going to be facing. And well, he actually fought for him too. And he actually, yes, he actually did fight for him. He's considered, I think they said that his children with the princess, could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that I read it. Um, his bloodline is considered to be the first mestizo uh, yes. bloodline oh, of the area. Yes, I fucking love that word, mestizo. Yeah, because it's the, the Spanish blood and the Mayan blood mixing, or mm-hmm. I guess the Spanish blood and the Central American blood, because yeah. I think everybody was a mestizo at that point that did that. But he's like still celebrated in Mayan culture today is like the one guy that didn't come fuck them over, like the guy that wanted to help. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe not initially. Maybe he was he, he came around <laughs> yeah. pretty quick. <laughs> and so yeah, so he ends up being kind of like the inside man, letting them know what the the Spanish are going to be up to. Old Geronimo, not not so much. Other way, other way for sure. All right, so tell tell us about Geronimo. Uh, Geronimo was held for I think it was like. It was a decent span of years. I want to say it was like, oh, I'll have to look it up. But as he was held um, and Cortez came, Cortez actually was able to free him. And as he freed him... Was it Cortez or his lieutenant? What's his lieutenant's name? The guy that's the... Cortez kind of, you know, as much as, as Cortez is kind of the overarching... He's the Thanos when it comes to South American Spanish conquest. He had a lieutenant that is kind of like... um 
basically like his underling. Like if you had to say he would be like the fucking, I guess, Loki. Yeah. In, in the first Avengers. So he was uh, captured in 1511 and he was rescued in 1519. So an eight year span of time that he's under Mayan, basically like he's a slave to them. He's picked up on the language. He knows how to speak the language. He knows how to translate. And when Cortez's underling comes and ends up rescuing him, he goes back to Cortez. Pedro de Alvarado. Ooh. Is the, is the lieutenant. That's spicy. Yeah, he led the initial efforts to conquer uh, Guatemala, too. But he became like this bridge for Cortez to be able to have a translator, to have a man who knows how to speak to these native peoples that... They ultimately have a lot of really bad run-ins with. And to the point to where they would be coming into these... They'd be traveling through the jungles to these towns. Like, whoa, what the fuck is this? This town's completely abandoned. It's mm-hmm. huge. What is going on here? And they go, okay, well, you know, it's abandoned. We don't see anybody in here. There's some pretty sweet structures. I don't really know what's going on. Let's keep moving on by. Then they would run into these villages of people on the other side that were the Maya that had just left that city hundreds of years ago. And they weren't really too keen on these invaders coming in. And they didn't have a whole lot. They kind of had the same war weapons that they were using. So they had armor. They had horses. They had, I believe it was like wool stuffed. It was some sort of stuffed armor. Are you talking about the Maya? Yeah. Yeah, the Maya had basically just like padding. Yeah. It was just some type of fabric. They had like padding, spears, atlatls, and that was damn near it. And then the Maya had your standard fare, or the Spanish had your standard fare of the horses, the armor... The swords, I don't think rifles at this point. Bows and arrows, probably. Yeah, but the one thing that they didn't have was the Maya or the home team. Mm -hmm. And so they started digging stick pits. So as the horses were to run through, they were going to run over these stick pits and fall into these Mm -hmm. holes. Because they would just, the, the cavalry charges would just completely cut through these guys. Yeah. And then even when, you know, the first time, I think we talked about this during the one. The first time you're seeing these guys, horses, you're like, the fuck are these things? Then you see these, like, guys in full silver armor riding them with these fucking swords. Your first initial reaction is going to be like, uh, look at your stick and be like, no. And as you turn to run, your brain is thinking, hey, I'm safe. I'm getting out of here. No. They'll just, just, they run you down and just fucking slash you through the back. Well, not to mention, like, as soon as you realize what you're up against, your first thought is like, is that God? Yeah. Did I really piss somebody off? Are these mm-hmm. are these people? I have no other frame of reference being? or explanation. Yeah. And you got fucking Gonzalo in the back going, They're not gods. <laughs> Gonzalo's like, these are the people I was telling you about. Mm. These guys. Yeah. So sort of after the Spaniards' first attempts in on the Maya people, they realized that they didn't have quite the weaponry to do it. So they went back to the conquered Aztecs. And started bringing swaths of them down to sort of fight like home home against home. Mm-hmm. Like you sort of know how these people fight because you've had to fight in these same conditions. Mm-hmm. And that really helped them start to make headway. Well, and you're also using soldiers you don't give two fucks about. True. It's just a, a, a local fucking army that you're commandeering and then you don't give a shit. You'll just go get more guys if all these guys die. Well, and like you alluded to, it's not like they're out there murdering people on the the battlegrounds. They're trying to steal these people. Like you were saying, these Spanish guys that were up on these horses started to notice that they weren't trying to kill them. They were trying to take them off of their mounts and then drag them back to these villages. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like they were trying to kill. Whereas the Spanish like, wait a second, 
we're trying to kill you guys in war, and you're just trying to take us? Like, yeah. you're trying to abduct us? This yeah. seems sort of how odd. Many, how many extra shots does that give you while they're just standing around your horse trying to pull you down? And your horse is also flinging around, mm. knocking them off and shit. It's going to go bad for you. And and not only that, man, but, you know, and any time you get these types of diseases with a populace that has no immunity to it, it ends up night wiping out 80 to 90% of them. 80 to fucking 90% of the remaining Maya population gets wiped out by one of those three diseases. Which, credit to them, they've come back very... It's been a long time, but they've come back very strong oh, in numbers yeah, to, to try to regain that population. 80 to fucking 90, man. You don't get much closer to getting wiped out of wiped off the fucking map than that. So you got the Spanish that are killing you with their fucking weapons, and you got the Spanish that are killing you with fucking viruses. <laughs> There's part of you that wonders is like a Spaniard that just was involved in warfare like a month ago with this tri or with this village with these people with this small grouping, mm-hmm. and you get all geared up and ready to go into battle, and you got your Aztecs that are going to go in there and kind of show you what's going on, and then you show up at the same place and they're all just laying there dead, and you're like, what the fuck happened? It's like, oh, you're just going into battle sneezing on people. Yeah, that's like one of your one of the weapons. Yeah, sneeze like, on them. Esteban sneezed on two guys and all of a sudden they lived and went back to their village and gave them smallpox and then everybody fucking died. Well, not only that, but if they're making contact with the Aztecs at the same time, the same thing is going on, on with another civilization that's been in contact with the Spanish too. Yeah, yeah. The Aztecs, I think definitely we're going to see a, a theme between the Inca, the Maya, and the Aztecs that it's pretty much disease that's the main driver of death coming from the Spanish. So it's basically, this is kind of the last gasp. It's not the last gasp, but as far as the Mayan civilization, the ancient civilization as we know it, the introduction of, of those diseases is kind of the the straw that breaks the camel's back. Well, and the, the rough thing that happens is basically anybody that lives is then being held under Spanish rule. Mm-hmm. And so they're being taught uh, crusade or... Catholicism. Yeah, Catholicism. Before, and initially, wasn't it Christianity? I was going to say, yeah. And, and that's what I was trying to, to think of. Yeah. Was it Christianity it that they were teaching them? But they're being... Fu- you had fucking, like, bishops coming in, or, like, monks coming in, and you want to talk about, like, the religious conquest? I can't wait till we do the Catholic Church. Yeah. But you have Absolutely. them coming in, you're like, oh, they're monks, and all that kind of stuff, and missionaries. No, no, like, if you didn't convert, they were still going to kill you. Uh, my other question about that, I heard the word Franciscan a lot. That's not from Franco, right? Franco was way before that, or way after that. That family could have taken its name. Oh, okay, so Franciscan, Franciscan monks yeah, couldn't have some... been Franco for like the Franco-Prussian War. Yeah, I think the that... whole Franciscan. I think that was a pretty widely okay. spread thing in in Spain. Uh, it might have even been a region. I don't. I don't know the Franciscan Franciscan region. Okay. But yeah, they they were basically being held under this Christian rule, and so. There's Catholic rule or Catholic rule. They're still falling under the issue of like trying to still be a part of their religion because that's all that they've known. Mm-hmm. They know that this new shit sounds a little bit different. Everything it's, that's come along with it has been horrible for them. And it's like, you're going to believe me like, no, no, no. I know, you know, the, the diseases were bad and we were killing a whole bunch of you with our ho- horses and swords. But this is the good thing that we're bringing into you guys. We're just going to throw your god out, and you're going to have to start worshiping this one. But it's cool. And how are you going to pass that off when it's like you've been a polytheistic civilization for thousands of years? All of you have. And now it's like, hey, 
we got one guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one guy just runs everything. Yeah, exactly. It's just God, and that is it. And it's not like, like you're going to run into a town that's like, oh, yeah, we've already been doing what you guys have been doing with the one God thing. It's uh, like everywhere you run into is like, no, what? Yeah, well, one guy can't do what every one of our gods have done. Like, one guy is not just that powerful. And that's sort of like where you get into uh, it, sort of ends that part of the story. Obviously, uh, as we've talked about kind of at length, the Maya people didn't just go away. The Maya people have been around. They've been rebuilding. Hardy people. Yeah. And that uh, it was so cool to see when we went on that trip and we got to eat in that Maya village because it's sort of like watching people subsist on like principles that their civilization, like their ancestors had mm-hmm. kind of done the same thing, but then adapting to ways of like being like, Hey, if you guys want to bring the tourists in, we're going to feed them an actual meal. They had um, a shop that was set up at the end that had all of these different things that they made, like the, uh, the green liquor, the anise liquor. Uh, they had hives of stingless bees that were producing Mayan honey that you could also buy. So it's like you see the melding of like the future and the past ancestors you becoming... You see some of that Mayan ingenuity, and yeah. I'm not saying it's exclusive to them, but like these cultures that survived that were based in ancient cultures have found a way to say, listen, we got to adapt. Why don't we use this to our advantage? People want to come see this shit, so let's make some money, and then we can use that in preservation and continuation of our culture. It's just a natural adaptability, I think. It's so cool to just see their survival, just their desire to want to keep their culture alive. And don't get me wrong, I felt not great about the whole thing. Like, it was a very cool experience to be a part of, but then to, like... I mean, we swam in a cenote that they said that was a water source for another mine village. Like, yeah. shit like that, where, like, they just bring a bunch of white people in there to swim in the cenote that's mm-hmm. supposed to keep this other place alive. Like, I didn't pee in there. That's the one body of water that I didn't pee that's in. very respectful. Yeah, just for that one fact. But at the same time, like, how much of their culture are they willing to sort of sell out, mm-hmm. per se? to continue on the legacy of the people yeah. that they're trying to do it for. Not like, really another choice in it, but at least they've kind of tried to embrace it as much as they need to. Yeah, you run into sites like uh, Chichen Itza, though, and we went to um, Tulum, which was a coastal city mm-hmm. that was very, very cool, and then we went to Coba, and that's like their sacred lands. Like Even though they didn't inhabit them, they don't currently inhabit them, mm-hmm. Like that's their history that they're just letting people come in and see. But at the same time, you just have to hope that there's 10% of the people that go see that that really, like it makes an impact on it, them. They like, appreciate it. Yeah. They're not just looking at it because it's nice to look at. They're like, well, man, like what did it take to, to create this and have it stand the test of time? Exactly. And there were so many places where like they said, oh, Back in the 70s and 80s, you could climb these pyramids that they built and then get up to the top and look. But now it's almost like they've taken a sense to be like, no, all you assholes are wearing these shoes that are degrading these temples that are our sacred sites. Trying to keep track of those people, it's the same thing that happened with the pyramids in Giza. If you give someone a chance where there's a lot of people around and not everyone's paying attention, you can't monitor, people are going to be chipping stones off of it and trying to take bricks and take pieces and shit. So it's better, you know, a bunch of assholes ruined it for everybody. But it's better, I would much rather have it just be where people can look at it, appreciate it, and be around for, you know, however many more generations this planet's going to fucking support us. Well, so much of it gives you, like, this just sort of smallness. Like, you yes. realize how many people it took to make something so big and so grand, and just you start to try to figure out how you would do it. 
your mind can't even go to how they did it because you just don't have a concept of like what they had. And understanding how long their civilization endured in comparison to what we consider our civilization with like a storied history and all this shit. Yeah. Like what theirs must have been like. And kind of touching on some of the, the cornerstones of the, the Maya culture. So, you know, their, their culture is based upon essentially what's the, the fifth world creation story. So it's kind of like a, is it, I, I, I a, love their whole religious beliefs because they believe that, um, they were currently living on the fifth creation of the gods. So there had been four other creations before that had been created and then destroyed because they didn't get it right. Mm -hmm. And they were just living in the fifth. So the fifth could go this way of the first four. It could be destroyed the exact same way. Um, they had a, (coughs) this is a very weird way for something to come about, but it's called the Popol Vuh. Did you read anything about that? I heard the name, but I can't remember what it was in reference to. So after they were occupied, after the Spanish had come in and taken over, um, it was actually, I believe it was a Spanish monk that dictated this from uh, a Mayan to where they they spoke, they Mm -hmm. understood each other. And it was like the passing down of the story of different things. It's not like they're sort of like their Bible. That's right. This ended up being one of the things that allowed them to go in to decipher the language. Yeah. Because it was documented by the Spanish monk. They had copies of it. In Mayan and in Spanish. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the best stories that came out of there, and this is going to be a tad long but I just want to sort of read some of what these two went through because it's such like a, I don't know when I start talking about it, I'm going to ask you, uh, and I don't know where you fall in like religious stories or tales or anything like that. But again, it's that weird thing where like the human mind kind of copies each other a little bit through no fault of their own. But, um, they were called the Maya hero twins and they were Hunanpu and uh, Zabalanke. I, I, I'm just going to call them H and X. All right. Because that's much easier. But uh, H and X love to play ball. And their court was from uh, the family court. Their father, their older brother, their uncle, all very prestigious gods. Their dad was the god of maize. Oh, these are gods. Yeah. Okay. So these are like holy children. M- maize meaning corn. Yep. And as they're playing ball on their court, it disrupts the underworld. So, as, as it tends to do. Yeah. So these are called the Zaibalban. And the Zaibalban is, it translates into the rulers of the Maya underworld. Um, when the twins began to play ball on the court, once again, the lords of Zababa, uh were disturbed by the racket and went summons to the boys to come down to Zababa and play in their court. Fearing they would suffer the same fate as their grandmother... Um, who also went down there and was to ball out. Yeah. Well, killed by, mm. <laughs> by the gods. Um, they get the message, their father, their uncle, and their older brother had also done the exact I'm same thing. I'm playing this in my head, like a neighborhood in Boston where you have two kids, two brothers that are playing. And then you have two <laughs> other brothers playing down the street and it's like, you think your shit don't stink? And challenging to a game. Yeah. So it says, uh, when their father had answered the summons, he and his brother were met with a number of challenges along the way, which served to confuse and embarrass them before their arrival. But the younger twins would not fall victim to the same tricks. 
they sent Mosquito ahead of them to bite at the lords and uncover which were real and which were simply mannequins, as well as uncovering their identities. Now we're turning into a game of D&D. I cast Mosquito. <laughs> well, I, to me, like when I hear this, it just uh, you're familiar with the story of Daniel and Lion's Den? Uh, no. So uh, Daniel was a holy man, and he was brought in front of a ruler. I forgot which ruler it was. Um, he told him to bow to him. Daniel told him to fuck off. He said, well, if you believe so much in your God, will he protect you against lions? Daniel said, I believe in him. Yes. So he goes, okay, well, I'm going to sentence you to sleep in the lion's den tonight, obviously with the lions eating him. His faith in God was so strong that he was able to speak to the lions and was able to lay and sleep with the lions. That's a very Christian story. Same thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three brothers that were thrown into the furnace Isn't with their belief in God stopped the them from being burned. The whole basis of Rome is Remus and Romulus, the yeah. two brothers that were raised by she-wolves. So it always seems like... And wasn't the Incan thing about brothers? Uh, it was about the husband and wife with the staff that they would stab into the ground. That's right, and the children. Okay, so there there is a common theme of like it starting out with like a pair. Yeah, pairing. but just so much of like the, the beliefs of the gods that they told them that they wouldn't be deceived by these tricks. So yeah. like they sent the mosquitoes out to sting the, mm-hmm. the underworld gods. Um, so once they arrived to Zalbabal, uh, they were easily to identify the real lords and address them by name because of the mosquitoes. They also turned down the lord's invitation to sit on a bench. You motherfuckers, looks like you just got chewed up by a bunch of mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah. You must be the guys we're looking for. Why are you itching? Why are you itching over there? Um, they turned down the lord's invitation to sit on a bench for visitors, correctly identifying the bench as a heated stone for cooking. Frustrated, but... Some Hansel well, and Gretel stuff there. Yep. Frustrated by the twins' ability to see through their traps, they sent the boys away to the Dark House, the first of several deadly tests devised by the Zalbabans. Their father and uncle had suffered embarrassing defeats in each of the tests, but again, H and X demonstrated their prowess by outwitting the Zalbabans uh, on the first of the tests. The twins placed macaw feathers in the torch of the lights in the house and fireflies on the tips of their cigars, as the uh, test was to hold the lit cigar all night and bring back a full cigar the next day. That's right, yep. So they used the caper of the macaw leaves for the lights on the candles, and then the fireflies as the lights on the cigars, returning them back to the Zappabons, which believes the torches and the cigars were lit all night. Uh, Dismayed, the Zappabons bypassed the remaining tests and invited the boys directly to the game. The Zalpabons insisted on using their own ball for the game, and the twins consented. The ball, however, was a skull with a blade inside of it. And when H hit the ball, the weapon was revealed. Complaining that they had been summoned only to be killed, H and X threatened to leave the game. As a compromise, the lords allowed the boys to use their own rubber ball. What do you mean? What do you mean you don't <laughs> want to play knife ball? Yeah. Uh, so basically, just to kind of hurry the story up, they were sent through these different tests and their knowledge and ability passed down by their parents, by the other lords Seven and gods. Or whatever, however many labors Hercules. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just so much of a story that you hear on the other side of the world that just is like, how can two brains come up with such similar things? Do we think this is a guy getting stoned, a village elder getting stoned and re- inventing this as their, as their mm-hmm. story? Like the the monk went to him and asked him to explain him to the stories. Like, hey, bring me some of your Spanish weed and let mm-hmm. me smoke it, and then I'll tell you yeah, all about it. Exactly. Got to be. I mean, this dude was just making shit up on the fly, I'm sure. But the other part about it um, was their calendar system. Now, they had three kind of 
calendars that they would go off of. I think they had more than that, but they had something called the long count calendar, which starts all the way back to August 11th. 3,114 BCE. There's an actual date? Yep. And how they did that was, uh, this is going to get very complicated, and I did this not stoned, so now doing this stoned and repeating it is going to be kind of tough. But their groupings of numbers, like how we do it by 10s, mm-hmm. they do it by 20s. Okay. And so 20 becomes the magical number. Um, somehow they had figured out that if you do 20 times cuz their calendar did equate to 365 days they had one that did yes. yes so they were able to go back just using that number in the way that they had their number system mm-hmm. set up and they were able to use days and we'll talk about the days and how they kind of calculated everything with that but through like different powers of numbers and doing mathematics, they were able to identify that singular day. And I'm sure it wasn't August because their shit wasn't named August, but that's like our modern Julian calendar. What it converts to for us. Yes, exactly. So, um, they had things called Bakhtuns and they consisted of 144,000 days. And that was considered their millennium. Okay. Um, underneath the thousand years. Yeah. Okay. And, it turns out that um, a boktoon is made up of a thousand katoons. A thousand katoons is made up of twenty tunes. Twenty tunes is made up of seventy-two hundred days. Okay, so that's sort of how they converted to do the math to mm-hmm. then go back to that date as far as the starting point of it. Um, we talked a lot about it earlier. Two thousand twelve, the alleged ending of the Mayan calendar was supposed to be December 12th, 2012. Mm -hmm. That was supposed to be the end of the world as far as the Mayan calendar was. Um, That was what was pushed on us and told to us if we just listened to scientists and archaeologists and everybody else being like, no, bro, that's that's not at all what this is. You guys are just taking a story and making shit up and running Mm -hmm. with it. It turns out that December 12th, 2012 was just the end of that Bach tune that they were in. Mm -hmm. So in all those days, that was just the end of their calendar before they started the next Bach tune. And how much does it make sense just to say they planned and had this calendar mapped out all the way back back then up to December 12, 2012, and then some shit happened and they didn't get to the next level yeah, of doing I, that? I mean, it, it very could be that, but it's just they... It, like, it was. They knew that time was cyclical. They knew in the next Bach tune, the same days would be falling on mm-hmm. the same times as the last Bach tune. So it was almost just like a start over. Much like we freaked out when the millennium happened about somehow these super advanced computers not being Watch able, UK. yes, not being able to change over from ninety nine to mm-hmm. two thousand. The Bach tune was just their millennium, so yeah. it would just immediately roll back over. We would go from the the thousands to the two thousands. Just a, a very simple sort of thought process that was able to be twisted around and movies made and shit like that because people were concerned that hey, they didn't... Hey, don't speak ill of John Cusack. <laughs> and part of the way that they were able to figure a lot of this stuff out was my astronomy was just some of the most accurate pre-telescopic... Or tele, telescopic... Telescope? Yeah. Yep, telescopic. Yeah, telescopic... Um, Astronomy. Like, mm-hmm. these people had so many of these different villages along the coast that 
their main jobs were to go up to these high temples and just map the stars, to map the seeable planets, which, again, I don't know how that's possible. And maybe it's just because I'm not really into astronomy. I think... But can you see planets with the naked eye now? Yeah, you can. So Really? Yeah, but they don't... They just show up as brighter stars, and some of them have a different hue of color. So, like, if you see Mars, you can very, very vaguely tell that there's a little bit of a red hue to it and really you can only do it at certain times but huh. you know when you break it down of saying like you know their astronomy was amazing this is something that they developed over the course of you know thousands of years so you know and it just the information because they were able to write stuff down people were able to learn and continue on with that research and make different calculations and, you know, different assessments and everything. So they were able, though, too, at the same time to distinguish planets from stars. Yeah. How and in the world are you that good at this? Over the course of time, I think if you have enough time to notice differences, like all it takes is for, you know, you to be looking at the stars. And you're like, that one looks kind of bright in a weird color. You jot it down as part of a note. And then all of a sudden, a year later, something rolls back around and someone else is like, I'm seeing that same one again. Either that or somebody from another city also has that written down on the exactly, same day yeah. in their notes. So it's like, you saw this too, right? Yeah. Yeah, it just, it's absolutely incredible just how detail-oriented. And they didn't have Netflix, so they their Netflix was watching the stars Pretty probably. Much. Yeah. Um, they had more accurate moon phases than Ptolemy, which, again, the Greeks were very big into astronomy. Mm-hmm. So you think that they Sucked would be... math. Great at <laughs> philosophy and astronomy. Couldn't figure out zero. Mm-hmm. Pretty good at astronomy still. But they were able to more accurately calculate like a full moon is opposed to basically where the sun was or where the earth was between the like sun the and the moon. Solar cycles. Yeah. Yeah. That's just, so that gives you sort of a reference of like a month. Um, they were more accurate with the solar year than the Spaniards, which I don't know a whole lot about Spanish astronomy. I'm just assuming by everything else that their culture had, they were probably They were sailing across the fucking ocean. You think that because their navigation was based on fucking constellation and the stars, that they would have a much greater understanding of it. Yeah. And it just, it's so incredible to think that they could do it. And part of that was really important because the solar year is going to tell you basically you're able to map the movement of other planets and everything as your year spins. Mm-hmm. So as, as the planets that you see in the stars return to the exact same spot that they had one year ago, because every day that we're tilting and every day that we're moving, they're coming a little bit more out of alignment. So that's where that math comes in. It's, it's dedication and time. Yeah. They had the time, they were dedicated to doing it, and that's how they came up with this shit. So to be more accurate than a very advanced culture just kind of puts them on the same level or, or higher in certain regards. And they use this uh, to form the Zolkin, which was a 260-day calendar that they used, which, like we were talking about earlier, it had actual farming cycles on it. Solstices, harvest times, things like that. Yeah, they knew when all these different things were, and they also used it for uh, religious days. They used it for celebrations and ceremonies. That's like a harvest, a planting, like... More paganish. Equinox equinox type stuff, yeah. Yeah. So you start to see the pagans and the Mayans, again, different sides of the Mm -hmm. world, but sort of following the same patterns. And this was able, like we were talking about earlier with the farming aspect of it, if you're seeing these different kind of farming days screw up and you're seeing like your summers are lasting longer because of the drought and then all of a sudden you have less water for these farming seasons, that had to have raised some sort of alarm. And maybe it did, but maybe it was just too far into it to be able to realize like, "Eh, this probably isn't going to work out for us. Um, 
they also had what is closest to what we have now. Um, it was the Hob calendar, and it was 365 days. So it was that uh, numeral of 20 that we talked about, the power of 20, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they had 20-day months. Their months were 18. Uh, so that equaled out to 360 days. And they just tacked on five days that they called unlucky at the end of the year. So it was like they had a little spillover because they wanted to keep things in 20s and they couldn't just add a whole nother month because there was only five more days until the sun came back to the right thing. So they just called them the five unlucky days. So it's like you just do you think like some shit had to go on lockdown? Like (laughs) it's the five unlucky days. Everyone stay in your homes. Yeah. Like everybody just starts packing up towards the end of it and packing their home with shit so they don't have to go outside and deal with anything that could be unlucky on those days. That's still crazy that they were able to do a 365 day year. Yeah, man, just uh, that kind of calculations with just what they had. We, I, I'm not sure how long. I, I again, self admittedly, don't really know a whole lot about like how the Julian calendar worked. I'm sure it was Roman because Julius Julian, mm-hmm. or um, or taken over by them and made little tweaks and then take yeah, them, yeah, could be. Um, there's another calendar. I don't remember what that one's called. Uh, the North Korean calendar. Yeah, that's a totally different. Every day is Kim Jong Un Day. Um, I want to say it's came over from somewhere in Mesopotamia, but I'm not sure on that, so I'm not going to go any further into it. But they had basically created something that's very accurate to what we do now. So all those years ago, all those thousands of years ago, they were able to start the building blocks to come up with something that we still use today. And a fair, I mean, twenty day months different, eighteen months different. But to come up with that number and then just realize, like, hey, we still have five more days till everything lines up right. Let's just call them the unlucky days. Mm-hmm. Like, instead of making a 19th you month and throwing off our numbers. It doesn't have metal tools. doesn't have <laughs> any type of, like, livestock animals. doesn't use the wheel or anything like that. And you have them being like, yeah, there's 365 days in a year. Yeah. So uh, just finally to kind of finish up something that they had created that uh, it was just called ball. That's all it was. And we got to walk around when we were in Coba. I got to walk around one of the ball courts and the shit set up like a volleyball court, man. There, there were risers on each side that were made of limestone and stucco. Mm-hmm. And it was an I shaped court. And they, I think over in I-shaped, like oval ish. No, like it was like a power eye, like oh, okay. a capital got, I. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Like it, it was right down the middle. And then there was a side above the uh, bleachers and a side below the bleachers okay. that they would play on. But I think over in Europe, in sort of in that area, the first balls that they created were made of like sheep's bladders. Yeah, they were inflated bladders, whereas, crazily enough, so the Maya with this ball game, the ball was made of rubber. Because they had rubber trees. Because they had rubber trees. But it wasn't rubber in the sense that like we're thinking with the sports ball where it's a rubber skin filled with air. This was a solid fucking natural rubber ball. It's like a Super Bowl. <laughs> yes. So more akin, closer to a lightweight bowling ball uh-huh. than an actual like basketball, soccer ball, whatever you're thinking of. Part of the rules, uh, something that heavy definitely couldn't touch the head because mm-hmm. that probably just would have killed you. I'm wondering court. how many people died before they instituted <laughs> that rule and be like, no more headers, guys. Yeah. Like, Jerry can't walk anymore. <laughs> that was our top math guy. Now he can't do yeah, math. Exactly. No more headers. Uh, um, couldn't touch it with your hands or your feet. It was just basically chest, thighs, anything from basically. So like shoulders, you could hit it with your hip. And what's even crazier is there was a hoop that's about the same height, taller than basketball hoop. Uh, I didn't see the height on it. 
and it's not even a backboard, right? Yeah, it's it was just, just a, a ring. A, a ring on a, a pole, and you basically had to try to – wait, it was the ring that stuck out sideways, like a donut, right? Yeah, sort of like uh, – God, I hate to say this. Sort of like Quidditch? Yeah, kind of, in, okay. in the sense that it faced that way to where your your shot was supposed to go through horizontally, mm-hmm. not go up and then down through yeah. the ring. So you would try to position yourself on the hoop was vertical instead of horizontal. Exactly. And you would try to hit this ball with your hip or your shoulder up up at least eight to ten feet off the ground through this ring. Like <laughs> I, I I've seen like clips of it being played and it just looks insane because like you'd have guys from like the other team trying to get in your way and you'd have guys on each side of it trying to just basically <sighs> hip check this thing or hit it up into this fucking ring. And it was, they took it so seriously that literal games were played for life or death. Yep. And part of it, not only that, they played it for funsies. Mm-hmm. That was, well, you had to practice if you were going to yeah. get into the murder league. <laughs> yeah, very true. Um, You're being called up. I don't want to be caught. It wasn't me making a suggestion. This comes you're, from the top. You're being called up. Well, and we got a big match against freaking um, Tikal. <laughs> Coming up here in a few weeks, we need you out there. Well, what happens if we lose? Well, don't lose. I, I'm going to lose and feel bad about it if we lose. You're going to lose and die. Yeah. See the see the temple up there? You're going to be going up those steps, and you're not going to be coming back down those steps. Yeah, good news if you win, we have fame forever. Bad news is if you win, you're going back with them, and you know what they do. But, I mean, they use this game for so much. So it was recreation and entertainment. They did it for religious ceremonies, like during festivals and things. Which I'm sure they did reproductions and replays of the Hero Twins games. Oh, yeah. Like Just that, the same way that gladiatorial games would reenact uh-huh. great battles and all that kind of shit. They had to have some type of symbolism in there. And then they even used it to, like, settle disputes. Like, fucking stomp the yard shit. Like, see you on the court. Yeah, if you have two upper crust members that are against each other, and one of them, there's a jockey for power or anything mm-hmm. like that, it's settled on the ball court. Yep. We we ball. <laughs> just threw a ball <laughs> challenge at me. Oh. But, yeah, I mean... Uh, to be advanced enough that you have essentially something to do with leisure, but not just leisure, you're turning it into something that's even bigger than that. Kind of like, you know, sports today all over the world have a type of reverence about them for, you know, it it does have a religious type following to it, depending on who your teams are and what sports you follow. And it was really, I mean... It's one of those things like you're saying, the human mind, wherever it is, works similar. There's always going to be something created that's like, this seems fun. Do we have room for fun in our civilization? We're at a point now where we're not just scratching for survival. We could probably do something with some downtime. Yeah, we could just create this rubber ball and mm-hmm. then start putting these rules together. And then all of a sudden, it's such a popular thing. And, oh, we heard about this in our religious text. Well, why don't we start implementing that today? And they said that most of these cities, if not all of them, had ball courts in them. So it wasn't just like a certain few of it's, them. It's tied into the religion. Their religion was founded, or their civilization was founded by two brothers whose intent was to go ahead and battle the underworld in a game of ball. So I guess like being able to play ball was almost probably like an honor. You were getting to do the same thing that essentially helped to forge your civilization. Yeah. Oh, uh, I forgot the end of the hero story. Uh, they both ended up losing intentionally, mm-hmm. and when they lost intentionally, they were burned. Their ashes were put into a river, and then that river was brought them back up into the sky where they became, I believe, the god of the sun and the moon. 
So a real Obi One Kenobi situation. Strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you can imagine. Yeah, oh, son of the moon god now, bitch. So I'm sure even then, probably the guy that was writing it down in the Papa Vool was like, "Ugh, we can't make these guys not want to do these life or death games." So mm-hmm. maybe if I tell them when they do die, they do get to go up and be gods. So yeah, maybe exactly. that maybe that's more. That's the pep talk. That's the corner <laughs> man's pep talk. Man, you remember Hunapua and. X, remember? <laughs> you need to channel those guys right now. Would they be trying to give up this game? No, they went down to the underworld. Yeah, but they died. But then they got to be the sin of the moon god. So Pretty you're saying cool. going to happen to me? Not saying it's not going to happen to you. No, get out there and give your best. That guy's going to be the god of the shitters. That's exactly. <laughs> this guy's fucked. Oh, yeah, this one, just as as much as there's missing about the actual, like, series of chronological, like, specific events and everything. There's a lot of, you know, highlights and everything, but it's man to me, it's just amazing. The, the advancement and the contributions and just like what they were able to determine just by simply doing some simple math and and shit like that. Well, and it's a, a discussion that you and I have had privately quite a bit just about like these, as far as these go, um, they're right up there with war episodes for me just because it's so cool to look at past histories of other civilizations. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we're going to be here in a thousand years. And, yeah. to, and to see how advanced a civilization could get, but then still be just like at the mercy of nature. Yeah. Like it just shows you like, it doesn't matter like what you're able to come up with and everything. And we've made advancements that allow us to kind of fight back as much as we can against nature. And I don't like using that term because we're not really fighting back. Um, but, you know, to see a civilization that lasted this long, I, I wish I could, you know, play, you know, what if and say, you know, what if they never ran into a drought? What if there was never a famine? The Spanish were still going to come in and do their thing. We might have more of a, you know, there might have been more of a revolution or more of a fight and everything. And who knows? Maybe we wouldn't have had any mines left over. Maybe we would have a lot more. It's, you know, it's kind of silly to speculate on that. But I still think the Spanish were going to, fucking do what the Spanish did and just try to fucking murder everybody. Yeah. Uh, it also, to me, feels like almost more of a human connection to go back and see some of these civilizations. I was say, it's got to be a much different feeling to be able to talk about this, but then have in, you know, have in your mind pictured what you're actually seeing and be able to actually understand the scope and the craftsmanship of all this stuff. Uh, it really puts it into perspective as far as the achievements that they had. It, it just like these people, the only difference is really between us now and them then was just we were born at a different time. Yeah, exactly. And these people made the best with what they could. They had some incredible advancements. Like you say, the clock was always kind of ticking because Spain was always kind of lurking Maya, around the corner. The, the, the Mayan civilization, the Maya themselves, they have a very solid greatest hits album. Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure the Aztecs will have the same as the Inca did, um, as the Nabataeans did. Like, all these cultures have certain things, even Alexandria, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. They just had this certain panache to do these things. A mystique. Yeah. The, we just really have to study. Like, this stuff is really, really important. That's why it's so cool to see the Maya tried to recapture this because this shit is really fucking important. Mm-hmm. And I think this goes back to like almost my desire of just being like a, another white guy that doesn't really have this culture and heritage yeah, exactly. beyond really what we have because our culture and heritage goes back to 
established like villages and colonies where everything kind of seems like it was similar. Mm-hmm. These people were so unique and it was so cool and their stories need to be heard because it's just another facet of being human that you want to understand. I can't close it out any better than that, man. Yeah. 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 Get ready for the Aztecs. Don't know when it's going to be, but it'll probably be well, a little bit. I was going to say, we won't make you wait a year or yeah. more than a year like we did with this, because after doing this, it, it really hits, you know, as much as it satisfies that urge, it really gets you itching again to to kind of go deeper into other civilizations like it. So, yeah, be on the lookout. You guys know where to find us. As always, we forgot to mention it at the beginning. Review, subscribe, rate, five stars if you uh, if you would be so kind. You know, send us comments. We'd love getting comments from you guys. We got some great ones from the the Star Wars episode. Definitely appreciate that. Um, some from people that were into it. Some from people that were just kind of casual people, but really enjoyed the episode and what it what it uh, provided. And uh, as always, we appreciate all you guys sticking with us. We know this was a little bit longer one, but we had to try to do the Maya justice. Yeah, and, and again with those reviews leave us some fun shit we're, we're gonna read it on the air just like our buddy jaw that uh gave us the john wick comparison like that, that shit's fun to read it, it makes us feel good because we enjoy doing this so much it's really hard to put into words but when we see that everybody else that's listening to us has a bit of joy if we can just give you that little break from the just mundane life that some people we can live. help that commute if you're yeah. driving around, if you drive for a living and everything like that, entertain you from spot to spot, or even late at night when you're just trying to wind down, throw on your earbuds, turn out the lights, just listen to us. Listen to the sweet, sultry sounds of history just soothe you. Absolutely. All right, guys. Thanks again for joining us this week, and we will see you next. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, Please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, Our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod. And we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically H.I. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historicallyhighpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again. Peace.